Hello, my fellow Westorians and Valari Redis. This is episode three of A Game of Thrones. Today we're covering Tyrion 1, John 2, Daenerys 2, Eddard 2, Tyrion 2, Catelyn 3, and Sansa 1. As always, you can join the discussion at our Facebook group. History of Westeros podcast is the name. You have to answer a few quick questions to make sure that you're not a troll or a bot. Other than that, you get right in and join the discussion. Same goes for Flick, but without the questions. The link to Flick is in the description, whether you're catching this on YouTube or via podcast. Small change to the way we're doing this. The videos will become public after live stream. The live streams themselves will remain semi-private as we planned from the beginning, but by popular demand. And I don't mean popular outside of our patron group. I put up a poll on Patreon and they said, yeah, make them public for everyone else. So that's where we're at. We also still have an episode document available on Google Drive that you can find in any of those locations that has a list of all the Valar Reredis live streams, um, which, of course, become regular videos after they're live. And, of course, you can still find them on Acast and all your podcatchers. Tyrion 1. Somewhere in the great stone maze of Winterfell, a wolf howled. Yeah, something about the howling of a wolf. That's relevant, right? <laughs> Let's start with some fun. The slap. <laughs> a good example of something that was very satisfying to see on TV. I mean, it was satisfying in on the page as well. But it was something that people like to make videos where it was just replayed over and over. Just hearing it slap, slap, slap. Just repeat, repeat. It's more importantly for the story, though, this is when we see that Joffrey is just a boy. And that makes me uncomfortable because we're rooting for slapping a kid. And you're like, wait a minute, I was rooting for slapping a kid. I mean, it's, it's a testament to how good a job of acting and writing goes into this. But it's just easy to go back to and justify, given what we later learn of Joffrey. But it's, it's all this cycle of parentage. Tyrion is probably slapping Joffrey. It, He's probably run out of patience. He's not, this isn't his first experience with Joffrey, to be fair. Still, this is probably how Tywin dealt with such things. He probably slapped Tyrion a few times or the equivalent. Maybe he didn't do exactly that, but it's basically all passed down by our parents. Speaking of being passed down by our fathers, what a great way to start off on Father's Day. Yes, this live stream is happening on Father's Day here in the U.S. (laughs) So how about that? What good timing. Even though Joffrey is just a boy, and even though Robert was a bad father, and Cersei's not exactly mother of the year, it's he's so consistently awful that it's hard to find sympathy for him. There's just no sense that he could ever turn it around. Maybe I'm just reading into that because I know already. But with some of the other characters, I don't know, I didn't feel like some of them that started off kind of rough. I didn't feel like there was no hope for them. Joffrey, maybe it's just George was writing it that way on purpose. It just didn't ever seem like there was much hope for him. Now, as we do know, George is really good at at making us take characters that we just thought there was no hope for and finding something to like about them, at least. Jamie, decent example. We don't hate Jamie completely for this many reasons. We, we maybe think he's a villain because, hey, he tries to kill a kid, but he hasn't behaved in this uh, really this way that just makes your skin crawl kind of grates at you especially when we see more of it in the Sansa chapter so a really interesting thing about the um the whole it's it 
good reference to Tyrion talking about dancing on the strings who came before us. That certainly plays true for all the characters and for us in real life, at least to a certain point. Good catch by Sir Raywin Hill and by uh, Lady Stephanie, or Stephanie the Peerless, Dwarf of the Lowlands, rather, who both, both noted that the line that Joffrey says can't abide the wailing of women, and he is the future wielder of Widow's Wail. Good catch, y'all. One of the great point, uh, uh, that's one of the great things about us doing this as a group. We do most of the heavy lifting over here, but y'all pitch in with questions and notifications and things you catch, the discussions on Flick and Facebook, and a lot of things that we don't catch that you guys pick up, and those get to be, get to join the episode, or get to join. They get to be part of the episode. Y'all are joining the episode sort of indirectly. The Hound, of course, is getting more character development here. It's still too early to say he's been developed a lot, but he's popped up in several chapters. You can You can see that he's angry and violent, but he also has a sense of humor, even though both his regular personality and his jokes are a bit calloused still he's rounding out a bit it's setting us up for his joke later quote-unquote joke he ran not very fast yeah so good example of a character who it didn't really seem like there was much hope for him either and he's an adult it almost seems like adults are more uh along their path so to speak than children you would maybe think joffrey's young there's still a chance for him but an adult, maybe less so. However, well, that's not what happens, is it? Sandor becomes compelling over time. Joffrey never really does. But at this point, Sandor is an angry brute. Not exactly a unique characterization, especially in a setting like this. I don't suppose he really stands out a whole lot to first-time readers at this, uh, at this juncture. And it's pretty jarring to see him do his bit about Tyrion. Uh, it's not really... That's not the kind of joke he makes later. There's a few things off in these early chapters that are not really reflective of the personalities of the characters in the long run because George is still kind of figuring it out, feeling it out. And Sandor does say something that's meant to be a threat, but is and it kind of is. But it's more than that. He says the prince will remember that, little lord. And it's really true, and it is it comes back to haunt Tyrion for sure. Joffrey hates Tyrion. And maybe he's always hated Tyrion, but Joffrey's hate for Tyrion causes him a lot of problems. And it's important to know, uh, you know, it's important. It's a lesson on, you know, picking your battles and um, who you want to be enemies with. Uh, The future king, you know, Tyrion's right as far as how, uh, as far as his attitude and as far as what he thinks Joffrey should be doing there. But yeah, maybe he didn't have to uh, antagonize Joffrey so much in the process. Tyrion goes off to have breakfast with his lion family. It's what's true for Sandor is true for Jamie. Like I said, Jamie's um, more surprising in some ways. We have more certainty with Jamie, though, that he's turned it around because we see inside his head, which is never true for Joffrey and presumably not true for Sandor. But even with Jamie, it's not true till a storm of swords. We've got a, a ways to go on that. Here, we just get more evidence that he's shallow. We haven't begun to figure out or learn the depth that he eventually shows us we've only really seen that he's awful and that Tyrion is not but Tyrion thinks here that he would forgive Jamie just about anything because he's the one person that has treated him well he thinks of the terrible long years of his childhood so that right there is the slowing the slow graying of some of these characters into not exactly what we expected the tropes are breaking down here already Tyrion 
is someone that we kind of like right away, even though maybe we're not sure about him because of his family. But Jamie, we didn't like, but here we have Tyrion endorsing him for being a good guy, for, for, for standing up for him uh, all throughout his childhood, which that seems like a pretty good thing for Jamie to have done. But we doubt he'd forgive Jamie, framing him for regicide as the 1993 outline called for. The original plan for George was to do that, of course. That may have been meant to be ironic foreshadowing. This is the kind of thing I wouldn't forgive him for. And maybe he won't forgive him for Tysha. Hmm, maybe he will, though. Maybe eventually he'll forgive him for Tysha. I think he probably will. Instead, though, this whole framing someone for regicide came back around and it's not framing so much, but it's blaming and doing nothing about it other than executing this straightforward kind of arbitrary justice. Of course, I'm referring to Tywin. Tywin basically sends Tyrion down for regicide, even though he's pretty sure he didn't do it. Tywin's just like, oh, well, we can't prove you didn't do it. So uh, we'll just, but don't worry, we'll send you to the wall. It won't be that bad. (laughs) Now, Tyrion went to the wall. He knows how it is, (laughs) which, of course, that's coming a little bit later in this episode. Another thing, making it hard to hate the Lannisters outright, a little subtle thing, apart from Tyrion, of course, is Tommen. He's noted to be sweet and genuinely hopeful for Bran. Well, you can't hate that kid. That's the first thing he does. And you're like, well, that's, that's nice. Plus, we're kind of predisposed not to be opposed to seven-year-olds, right? Uh, and Marcella, also pleased to hear Bran might live. And Tyrion notes that she has her mother's beauty and none of her nature. That's an endorsement of Marcella, saying she's kind of the opposite of Cersei. And, well, sigh. They're both going to die, golden shrouds and all, I suppose. Marcella, target of revenge by the Sand Snakes, I suppose. And perhaps she will be poisoned. Speaking of dancing on the strings of those who came before us, Marcella, innocent and all that, but what her grandfather did and parents as well. Yep, coming back to bite you, using a snake metaphor there, or snake joke there. (laughs) Pun. Surely young Tommen will, will not commit suicide by leaping right? That's what the show gave us. But in Fire and Blood, we see more than one important Targaryen conveniently fly out a window, changing the shape of the royal family. And that's why I bring this up now, because the fate Jamie and Cersei gave to Bran will not unlikely befall their son instead. And it's worse than that even. Maybe. Perhaps I'm just thinking too brutally here, but also in Fire and Blood, one of the royal kids who plummets to their death, and yes, I say one because it does happen to both Helena Targaryen and Jahera Targaryen. Well, poor Jahera doesn't die right away and lingers for a half hour in agony before dying, but without help. No one puts her out of her mercy. And the reason I bring that up is because Jamie says, I would, if it were my son, it would be a mercy. And that's, of course, referring to what just happened to Bran. So hopefully that's not foreshadowing uh, Jamie having to give the gift of mercy to his own kid. Or at least being presented with that as a thing in front of him. What is almost definitely foreshadowing is the next thing Jamie says. Even if the boy does live, he will be a cripple. Worse than a cripple. A grotesque. Give me a good, clean death. Well, narrator voice. George R. R. Martin. He did not get a good, clean death. So we love this early affirmation of Jamie's ideas on being a, a cripple and how terrible it would be for him to become one. We are still so far away from that again. His POV, Storm of Swords, books away. But here we go. The seeds right here at the beginning. Now, this is also interesting in the light of Jamie's son, 
trying to put Bran out of his misery, meaning Joffrey, of course. Wow, <laughs> right? So many little, uh, yeah, it's all very sad kids putting each other out of mercy and all that. Ah, um, this is like the only time we see the Lannisters together as a family, which is kind of interesting. It's not in their home. It's in Winterfell, and we've just witnessed their arrival and their procession via the Stark eyes, so it's seen through their perspective. So it's pretty important that we get a different perspective, which is within his own family, even though it's the person that's maybe the least part of the family, so to speak. Tyrion's kind of the outsider in the group, even despite Jamie uh, including him as much as he can. You're not normally given a window into this, into quote unquote the bad guys, but that's kind of the point. They're not the bad guys. But at this point in the story, that is what they look like. We don't, you may not realize when you're reading for the first time what's going on. You just kind of, it looks like, oh, the Starks are the good guys, Lannisters are the bad guys. Pretty quickly, that's not the case. Jamie casually mentions Brandon Stark being murdered as joking evidence that Bran is an unlucky name. <laughs> well, how about that for some meta? If Bran ends up being king, and a lot of these other brands were king, Brandons were king, well, they weren't also unlucky. Reading this the first time, though, one doesn't realize Jamie was there for that murder by strangulation and burning of Rickard at the same time. And Jamie kills that king, too, though he failed to kill Bran, as we see. Mm -hmm. Tyrion's too smart and keyed into his family's typical behaviors that he seems to sense something is up here. He catches the look between Jamie and Cersei, and that kind of gives it away. Then when he mentions wanting to hear what Bran has to say, they even more react. This is a... As co-writer Joe Buckley puts it, it's a it's a years-long forged ceasefire of sorts. Tyrion obviously knows Cersei hates him, but she's merely short with him here. She pro and she realizes that Jamie accepts him. So if she ever were to go against him, it would be kind of two against one. Jamie, this is the one thing Jamie wouldn't back her on. In fact, she might back Tyrion, or he might back Tyrion, and that's that's a place Cersei doesn't want to be with Jamie against her, even you know in a conversation. But uh, so she's not hateful to him yet though we certainly learn about that later on the flip side Tyrion knows his siblings know something but he also is very clever about how he goes for it he doesn't just throw it out there he kind of talks around it brings it up without bringing it up mm -hmm. and then he says you know how much I love my family so here we have foreshadowing for Tyrion going against his family though it is not a lie that he loves them for now <laughs> in the show he's extremely conflicted over being on opposite sides as them and we can most likely expect that in the books as well it'd be kind of strange if he was just like yeah i'm gonna kill my family and just not think about how you know his past or anything just go for it go berserk and bloodthirsty doesn't seem likely does it seems like he's gonna have some feelings over that the show also didn't give us taisha so he has even more reason to be upset with jamie though in this case but like i said before i do think he'll probably forgive jamie for that but it won't be easy he is far further along the hate train and dance, basically, is what we could say. He never gets that far in the show. And that could be, maybe this is abandoned foreshadowing here. In the 1983 letter, it outlines Tyrion eventually switching over to the Starks instead of to Daenerys. So either way, he switches sides. And also, by the way, in the 1983 outline, he falls for Arya, which is a totally different thing. <laughs> 
which I guess maybe that is what George folded into him maybe falling a bit for Danny. Hmm, eh, I never really thought about that, but that's probably what it is. And it's also easy to miss that these, this foreshadowing was originally intended to be a different kind of foreshadowing. Uh, I'll get to that in just a second. First of all, it's easy to miss how the, a theme here, which is the kind of outsider parts, uh, aspects or viewpoints of some of these families. We have John's bastardy and his outlook, John Tyrion being kind of similar in his way, saying all dwarves are bastards. Arya's in the shadow of Sansa being forced to be what she's not. Danny's childhood filled with fear and all that. And the one kid who's seems to have had a good upbringing, Bran, well, he just got thrown out a window and we haven't had a Sansa chapter yet. That's another thing. So there's uh, these themes of being outcasts and, them having these things in common. You know, Arya and John show us that straight up when they bond. And then John and Tyrion do it as well. And then Bran when he wakes up. But Tyrion, chief of the outcasts in a sense, right? He, the, the, his line about bastards, cripples, and broken things. He sets himself up as that. So it's really quite nice. That, by the way, speaks a lot towards him steering things towards Bran in the endgame. Interesting note, a little maybe a bit of a relic of the way these chapters were originally written. A little odd that Tywin doesn't get mentioned, you know. If uh, George had it to do all over again, I imagine there would be at least a mention or two of Tywin. Let's talk about the dragon and wolf symbolism here. Uh, that's what I, this is what I was talking about with the foreshadowing kind of being misdirected or sort of changed. George kept the idea that Tyrion would go against his family, but changed who he would change sides for. So the howling at breakfast, or rather the howling opening of the chapter of the wolves, and there it was referred to by Joffrey and here at breakfast, that's <laughs> foreshadowing for wolves versus lions a bit, but it's also gets us into the, the superstition, the magic a little bit because of how it, the wolves are impacting the kids. But that's, a, that's also coming up later. Interestingly, there is a bit of dragon foreshadowing here, though it's kind of minor and it might be unintentional. Tyrion peculiarly loves his bacon burned black, which, as we know, is how the dragons love their meat. They won't eat it unless it's very, very seared. They love it. Well done is an understatement, I suppose. Or at least they like it partly burned. I'm not exactly sure. Dragon eating habits are a topic for another day. But that is interesting. Also, Tyrion grins wolfishly when Jamie accuses him of, you know, what side are you on? That's the only time wolfishly appears in the entire series. And it's funny that wolfish is wolf and fish, Stark and Tully, which is that the side that he was originally going to switch to. Uh, wolfish, the word does appear three times. Wolfishly once, wolfish three times. So there you go. That's probably what George was doing there. But still, it still kind of works. Uh, I guess if we're, again, doing it all over, if George were going to rewrite that, maybe he would change it to a dragonish grin. <laughs> but that would be a little too obvious. <laughs> and I guess Tyrion will be working with Jon and them, the Starks, somewhat. They're not going to be going to war with each other, I don't think. So, well, that's cool. It kind of works still. Let's talk about the books a little bit. Tyrion is uh, the first thing we get is him reading books, staying up all night reading, something we all like. I mean, as readers, that was clearly designed as something to make us feel uh, sympathy slash kinship with Tyrion. Start us off with 
a dude who likes to read all night long about obscure, cool stuff. Like, hello. <laughs> Great way to make us like him. He reads in a hundred year book on a uh, hundred year old book on the changing of seasons. He reads a book about Ethelmuir. He reads a book about Armadon's engines of war, which Joe Buckley notes could be relevant to his campaign with Daenerys. Same goes for the so-called Valyrian scrolls he finds. Now, I don't know of Armadon being mentioned anywhere. He might be in fire and blood. I don't think he is. Ethel Muir, I don't think is either, but they're definitely not in the other books. So, yeah, slightly disappointing that they didn't pop up again. But kind of sad, as, as exciting as these books are, they probably burned up in Catelyn's chapter, which is uh, later in the episode, of course. And that's sad. So, yeah, book burnings. Man, he starts us off small with book burnings and moves on to, you know, people burnings. But it is sad. Something that other types of fans may not care so much about. But we really feel those burn books, don't we? And there's a few other things here that are worth mentioning before we move on to the questions and then the next section. He's not... He's not a child. He's not a parent. He's not a warrior. He's not a lord. He's not morose or grand. He's different physically. He's from the bad guys, but isn't really one. And yeah, it's he's a really interesting character. He kind of comes out of nowhere. He has sarcasm. He's just a really cool character. And I just want to take that a moment to point that out, even though it's not necessarily our focus, but just the way he starts off compared to some of these other characters. And knowing what we know about him later, it's fun to see some of this stuff come full circle and to see what he's doing early on. He's very likable early on, and he's less likable later. That's a, a thing that bears mentioning as well, that a lot of these characters are less likable and become likable. And frankly, Tyrion is the opposite, although I think George might do the whole like him, hate him, then like him again. We may end up liking him again by the end, but we might not. And if so... It pays, I think, or at least it will be interesting to consider that as we move forward. Maybe we should be thinking that Tyrion is going to be a bit of a villain down the line. Maybe not, but consider it. All right, let's check out the first set of questions that y'all might have here. Just a couple from Abraham Gabayu. He will fall for John. <laughs> Arya equals Leona equals John. <laughs> Didn't see that one coming. Tyrion falling for John. He's like, you know, John's got those beautiful, stark gray eyes and that long, sullen face. <laughs> well, you know, it's he's obviously joking, but, you know, he, he points out that, that Arya, you know, Tyrion was going to fall for Arya, and Arya looks like John. So <laughs> clever, clever. Brian Eidolon says he has dreams about fighting alongside the Golden Company and killing Jamie. Yes, he does, much later. Although in the dream, the Golden Company is represented by Tyrion fighting alongside Bittersteel. Yeah, that's very true. And of course, having two heads is also, which is, which is what he has in that dream, is also a reference to the Golden Company because of Maelys the Monstrous. And it's really cool. Of course, dreams are a big part of the series. We did a whole episode on them and feel like we left a lot out because there was so much that we couldn't cover or didn't think about. Tyrion's dreams are of particular interest, especially as we're re-looking at them, because there's still the question of whether he might or might not have some Targ blood. And, well, that's what we have to do. If we're looking for those clues, the burned black bacon is a clue that he might be Targaryen. However, most stuff dealing with dragons isn't necessarily a hint that he's a Targaryen. It's just a hint that he's going to switch to that side. So you have to make sure to parse that. 
Um, not that Brian wasn't doing that. Just remind it just reminds me of that concept. Okay, let's go to John two. First line is John climbed the steps slowly, trying not to think this might be the last time ever. Well, so far he hasn't climbed them again, but he almost certainly will. It looks like he'll get to go back to Winterfell at some point. Maybe not, but I believe he will. John says goodbye to Bran, Rob, and Arya while facing down Catelyn. In this one chapter, John has more interactions with more of the Starks than any of them do with each other in the entire series. <laughs> there are little pairings here and there with Rob and Bran and Arya and Sansa, but we don't see them like as a group, kind of talking as a, you know, as a group. Not like the family dinner we just saw with the Lannisters. There's nothing like that with the Starks, which is pretty interesting. Maybe the closest we get is the execution at the beginning, where there's a whole bunch of Starks together. But they're still not talking as a group, and the girls aren't there, nor Catelyn. So you can't really count that one either. And Bran and Rob don't really interact with the girls. Of course, in Bran's case, he's kind of out of it. But Rob, I mean, he stays there at Winterfell with, and the girls leave uh, for King's Landing. So it's true that there's not a lot of opportunities, but the the chance that we did have, George didn't take. So I suppose he's saving that for later. Well, except in the case of Rob. And this is interesting, too, because if John is the outsider, he's the one getting all these scenes. So that's kind of neat. Now, it begins here with John. He's, yeah, John. it was too quiet, Bran thinks, or John thinks. And we also see that Bran is getting thin and Winterfell is changing quickly, basically leaving childhood behind. We're getting an early introduction to that. What later is said more bluntly, kill the boy. It's happening here, but it's, again, not put so severely. But that is exactly what's happening to all of them, not just John, but we're seeing it through John's eyes. And, well... Uh, it's a, it's a good joke to say that John, when he went into the bedroom there, it was, uh, it really prepared him for the wall because he's never going to find a colder place than that. <laughs> John tells Rob later that it's harder to leave than he thought. A little of the youthful bravado is fading as the reality of leaving home sets in. But also part of this delay is the fear of facing Catelyn. Frankly, he says, he was putting it off because of her. And that's really telling that his brother is lying there dying, might die any minute. And he's still afraid to go see him because Catelyn's there. And this is a bit of the unspoken subtext here that maybe John realized he had to go, whether to the wall or somewhere, no matter what. He may have anticipated all this with with his father accepting the king's hand job and realizing that the king's hand job. <laughs> <laughs> I said Ned accepted the king's hand job. Okay, well, we know something about Robert and Ned that we didn't know before. Ooh, first Tyrion and John, now Robert and Ned. Where is this going? Um, so he kind of probably saw the writing on the wall is what I mean. That even with Rob sticking behind, Rob might not be enough to keep Catelyn at bay. Uh, with Ned not around either. Yeah, John might not want to stick around for that. And he thinks to himself that he hasn't had a chance because, quote, not once did she leave the room. It's almost reverse shadowing, uh, reverse foreshadowing, rather, here in how Catelyn never leaves in this case, but never returns for the rest of the series. She's terrified of missing anything now. It's, you know, FOMO. But it turns out she was right to leave Bran's side is to leave him for good. So 
Whoops. Despite his love for Bran and fear that Bran may die, like I said, John had delayed the visit to this point, but he does at least draw strength from it. He says, I'm about to go to the wall. I can face tougher than Catelyn Tully Stark. And that's cool. But it still doesn't go well. It still goes about as badly as he could have thought. And, and to be fair to Cat, surely the grief and fear and lack of sleep are a big thing here. But, uh, you know, it's clear as well that this isn't new. John was terrified of her before he went up there. It's not like he was expecting her to just be a little mean. He, he wouldn't go see his dying brother because he was so scared of her. I like Catelyn. She's a great character. I like reading about her. I think she's a decent person, but she's a good example of what George is doing here, showing us that just as Jamie might actually be a little okay and the Lannister kids are pretty cool, Catelyn's, you know, got some bad in her as much as she is good. It's mostly good, but John's thoughts reveal that she's been terrible to him for a long time. It's not just this one incident. Even though this one incident is probably climactic in a sense, it's been bad for his whole life. It's not a story about good guys and bad guys. This is also foreshadowing what she's going to look like as Lady Stoneheart. This viciousness that she has is going to be put to use when she's got real enemies. John's not really her enemy, as we know. But when she's faced with real enemies who really put her children in danger, because that is at the root of it for her, a lot of it, is the danger she thinks that John poses. Although, to be fair, as I said last episode, it's not all about that. She said she doesn't mind John as long as he's not there. So yeah, she's near exhaustion and madness at this point, and we'll find in Cat 3 when she snaps out of it a bit. Uh, but I don't, I don't think this means she's saying things she doesn't mean. It's just that she's saying she maybe in a normal state of mind, she would have kept it to herself and just kind of been a bit haughty about it. A lot of times we get the impression that she just kind of pretends he's not there or just acts coldly, which is still bad, but it's not like she's constantly berating him like we see in this scene. We're also introduced to how badly she feels. She's got this guilt about praying for Bran and all that, and John isn't sure whether he should say anything. And he does say something, and she snaps at him, and he, well, yeah, you guess you, I guess you were right. You shouldn't have said anything there. But, <laughs> but it's, it's a big discussion in the fandom about this scene, and it generated a lot of discussion in our groups as well. And really, a lot of it just revolves around people forgetting just how bad it was. Because there's so much to learn in these early chapters. You're taking in so much at once. Cat being vicious to John maybe doesn't stand out as much as some of these other things and having a second look at it. Yeah, it's, 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 it's bad. A lot of people just didn't, you know, kind of were like, wow, that's worse than I remember. And another person, another thing people point to something that I point to as well is that when John goes to say goodbye to Rob, well, first of all, John notes that Rob is acting more lordly and Rob in turn notes that John is bothered, which he immediately knows what the problem probably is. He suspects it's his mother treating John badly, but John gracefully lies about it. That Rob, but the fact is, Rob being aware at all, it's a bad sign that Kat's treatment of John was known. And John says, you Starks are hard to kill regarding Bran, but over time, the one who will prove hardest to kill is John himself, especially if you count coming back from the dead. Rob and John expect to see each other again before too long, but another sigh for the Lannister kids and now for Rob. 
Snowflakes melting in his hair we get in the scene, and it's, sh- it's very sharp imagery that both John and Sansa come to remember years down the line. And Rob crosses that over with his own departure with Sam in Dance with Dragons. For a relationship that is so deep and symbolic for both young men, as they grow up into positions of power, we have so few scenes of them together. Yeah, it's, it's too bad we didn't get a little more of that, but remember, this sh- series was planned as a trilogy. I think if George had started this off as a seven-book series, if he had gone with that in the beginning, he probably would have taken a little more time with these early Winterfell scenes. That's also why they're so jam-packed with foreshadowing, because he was trying to do a lot much quicker. We really get this and Bran 1, and that's about it. So we don't get a lot of their competition up front, but we do get it in John's memories. George does give us more of it later through flashbacks, sort of. Not really flashbacks, it's the same. That literary flashbacks, I suppose. His memories, same, same thing, really. And so he doesn't really give us the depth that maybe we need uh, for these guys a little later, but we get it in other places. Let's talk about Arya and Needle. Like in the Tyrion chapter, there's a budding subtle evidence that the direwolves and Starks have the skin changer bond. The little things are going on here that we don't necessarily know what to look for the first time through. But here, it's a cute moment. But Nymeria helping Arya pack is, is possibly supernatural. On the other hand, wolves know a lot about packs, right? Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. I got her. <laughs> Nymeria also has already learned to bark as a warning after being told to guard. They're learning really fast. So, you know, and the, the undertones, now that we know better, is that there's a magic going on. Um, yeah, it's not just um, it's not just dog and owner. As we're told many times, they are more than dogs. And perhaps because Nymeria's wildness is in play, at least later, that's also a reference because all the Starks do and their wolves seem to have personalities that are reflective. And you, you're, we can be pretty sure that the Starks didn't get their personalities from the wolves because the wolves are just pups. And so uh, it's almost almost a sure thing that the personality input came from the kids onto the wolves with maybe a little coming back. But mostly I would suspect it's the owners imprinting their personalities on the wolves. They say together in unison, don't tell Sansa and share a laugh. Arya and John are very observant together. They know Sansa is a bit of a tattler, which is foreshadowing (laughs) and interestingly enough a recurring theme is that ned doesn't really get his own kids a lot of ways he's uh he's a good father in the protective sense but he's not great at reading their personalities in a lot of ways or, or what's ailing them or what would make them feel better and here's an example ned has if ned had the insight that Arya and john do here he would not have ta- told Sansa about his plans, which wound up tattling, and or she wound up tattling to Cersei, and that did backfire pretty badly. Uh, so John also tells Arya, you'll have to be fast. And then when she guesses the name Needle, he thinks of how quick she is, so quick and fast, and they love each other. This scene is great. And again, it's because they're both outcasts. They have so much in common. And it's not just the way they look, but that definitely helps. This scene is equally as important for Arya's story as it is for John's, right? I mean, it's in Arya's room, and it's how the chapter ends. The last line is, the memory of her laughter warmed him on the long ride north. Yeah, it's good. It's, and of course, this, this refers a bit to the original plan of Arya falling for John, the foreshadowing here. And presumably, this would come after learning that they aren't really brother and sister. Eh, we're still glad he dropped that plot, though that would have helped, I suppose. Though some of the original plot elements that were dropped are still foreshadowed 
they don't seem like romance, right? Arya and John loving each other. It didn't seem romantic. Not that he would write it that way for them being so young anyway, but there wasn't any, I don't see even like a subtle thing here. This is familial. This is they're fans of each other. They're not attracted to each other. That's not hinted at at all. So, so I'm, that's good. <laughs> and there's also some slight hints here maybe about them joining up again at the same castle, which, you know, maybe would have been done in the original draft. Likely would have been anyway, because again, smaller story, everything coming back full circle to Winterfell just makes more sense in that light. This also speaks to the original plan of Sansa staying Lannister. She was going to have Joffrey's kids and not ever really come back over to the Stark side, although it would really, she would come to regret it, but she would have kids with Joffrey and she would love them. So there's that. But that obviously isn't happening. Instead of Jon's reveal leading to a new opportunity for a loving relationship with Arya, it seems George R. R. Martin decided that Jon's parentage would perhaps ruin a relationship instead. Maybe his and Danny's. Because if they fall for each other before John learns who he is, well, then we get similar to HBO. Maybe. We shall see. It's, this pol- it's the polar opposite, by the way, of Arya meeting, or John meeting with Catelyn. It's an important scene to show why John hasn't gone completely off the rails due to Catelyn's abuse, right? He still has this connection to the family through Arya and Rob, but of course, Rob won't be there later, so the connection to Arya is important. And of course, Catelyn won't be there either. Well, or will she? Well, she won't be Catelyn. <laughs> it also shows that Arya is disconnected from Catelyn in some ways um, because they're different. Catelyn is more like Sansa. Sansa is more like Catelyn. They get each other more. Uh, and Arya, no, not so much. Catelyn hates John. Arya loves John, right? You can see some of these opposites. And of course, the way they speak to each other. Catelyn pretty much ignores him or stares at him or etc. Whereas John and Arya love each other and talk a lot. Finish each other's sentences, in fact. You got silence versus finishing each other's sentences. That's uh, really neat the way George did that. All right, questions about John 2. Like I said, a lot of people couldn't, didn't recall just how bad that scene was with regards to Kat uh, and John. And Stephanie, the peerless, points out different roads sometimes lead to the same castle which is surely what uh, we meant about Arya and John coming back together. Yep, absolutely. That's the quote relevant to that. We have a couple of different people saying similar things. Brendan B., John Hagee, Brian Eidolon, and Christina Minoli all had the following uh, references that are related. In this chapter, John says, fingers like the bones of birds. Mm, bones of bird. Three-eyed raven foreshadowing for, for Bran. I missed that, and I think, yeah, that's really good. John Hagee think, notes that he's fragile as a leaf. Oh, the rustling of leaves. And of course, leaf, the child of the forest. Boom. That's excellent. Brian Eidolon says the frailty he's described with sounds similar to Blood Raven's ultimate state. Yes, 100% with minus the trees growing out of his face. But yes, so maybe 99%. <laughs> Not quite 100, but so close. That's absolutely right. I love that catch. Christina Manoli says twisted legs reminded me of the roots of the tree. Hell yeah, you guys are killing it. That's awesome. Derek Johnson says, later on she shows her bias towards hating bastards when she meets the bastard girl in the veil and initially dislikes her. So true. And you wonder if she would hate bastards less if it wasn't for her experience with Ned and John and the way she was forced to not talk about it and all that. Not that I'm trying to say, you know, excuse how she treated John, but it, this isn't just a black and white thing. She has reasons. They may not be great reasons, but there are reasons. Marin Mehus says, Cat never addressed him by his name. 
Yeah, that's a big thing. For 14 years, that's the reason he stops and turns around and says, you know, part of him was thinking maybe I shouldn't have stopped and, and, and listened to what she had to say there. I knew it was going to be mean, but I was thrown off because she used my name for the first time in 14 years. Damn. Can you imagine living in a house with somebody that will not call you by your name? That's that's rough. Brian Eidolon points out calling him by name when humanize him. That's right. She's trying to not think of him as who he is. She's not giving him an identity, which comes up huge later with Davos and Stannis. What does Stannis try to do? The bastard, the boy, et cetera, et cetera. Davos just insists. Edric Storm. Edric Storm. has He has a name. It's really a common re- theme here, the treatment of children. We see it with Robert and Ned. We see it here, and we see it in the future so many times. Brian Eilon also says, suddenly she looked like she was going to cry. I wish you were coming with us. Different roads sometimes lead to the same castle. Who knows? Yeah. Now, that line, of course, again, comes up. Uh, we brought it up just a minute ago, but it has, the, it has, has so much resonance for different things because it's not just Arya and John, as we referred to the first time, but maybe Bran and John as well. Christina Minoli says, John says, I'll spend my first year in the wall emptying, emptying chamber pots. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, two things. Um, uh, I guess the part of the Brian's comment was that that line he said has a much warmer feeling now that the show is given hope that they'll meet again at Winterfell. Right, right. Was the big part of that comment. Yes, thanks for the clarification. You're right. <laughs> and of course, for the John comment, it was that uh, we would see a John chamber pot montage a la obviously the poop Sam. soup loop yeah <laughs> <laughs> that would be yeah. great i'm glad you jumped in shay hadn't jumped in yet and this is my my chain whenever I'm, I'm, i haven't gotten used to doing so many of these by myself and it's nice that when she speaks up i can not only get a great take because i'm almost everything she says is going to be a great addition to this episode but and other episodes but i get to take a drink <laughs> it's hard to find a minute to take a sip here all right so we have uh, one more one here. more comment here from Ebram Gabeyu says Arya falls for John Gendry equals bastard equals John. Ah, OK, <laughs> so it's sort of a joke, but it's also maybe a diversion of the original plan from the plotting. In other words, George says, well, let's give not his own family member or not her own family member. And let's not have Arya fall for John, but a different bastard of similar ilk instead of a Stark bastard, a Baratheon bastard. And of course. Robert Ned, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's pretty good. It's really neat picking apart George's early intent here. And these are really our only chance because after we get past these few chapters, I mean, it's the, it, George's initial submission was 13 chapters. And by the end of this episode, we'll be past that. Uh, and you can see that's probably, by the way, why Sansa's got her first chapter comes later. And he you know, may have done her chapter, her first chapter earlier if he had been more expansive early on. But, uh, you know, he, she wasn't originally planned as a POV. But now we're on to Daenerys 2, not Sansa, not yet. Daenerys 2 starts with Daenerys getting hitched in a ceremony that just kind of, well, it wasn't a dull affair, but not exactly the kind of wedding a young girl would dream of, nor a young man, nor an old man, nor an old woman. No one dreams of weddings like hers, except perhaps George R. R. Martin, and not for uh, something he wants for himself or anyone else. The horse she receives as a bride gift, her silver horse, on the other hand. Now that is a breathtaking animal worthy of dreams. And of course, well, because so many things with Danny come in threes, might as well complete this talk of dreams with one she actually had, a dragon dream. What a great way to start the, the, the 
chapter. Chapter, that's what it's called, right? Chapters, that's what these things are called? Yeah. Daenerys Targaryen wed Khal Drogo with fear and barbaric splendor in a field beyond the walls of Pentos, where the Dothraki believed that all things of importance in a man's life must be done beneath the open sky. That's the longest first sentence we've yet had, and it's awesome. I love it. So keeping with the child of three, uh, themeology, themeology, um, that is all over this chapter. Themeology. <laughs> yes, excellent. So, uh, uh, yeah, the three themeology here, themeology is so strong. Three bride gifts, bow, arak, whip, three slaves, Eri, Jiki, Dorea, three dragon eggs, obviously, and even some sneakier ones. Like there's three fears she processes. First, the Dothraki themselves. Second, consummating the marriage. And third, her brother, who, you know, if we're taking a step back, he's by far the least scary of all this. And as it turns out, the consummation doesn't go so badly. But, uh, you know, we'd all have been terrified, too, if we were in her spot, I do believe. There is a ton of foreshadowing in this chapter, even apart from the child of three stuff. Quote, as the hours passed, the terror grew in Danny until it was all she could do not to scream. She was afraid of the Dothraki, whose ways seemed alien and monstrous, as if they were beasts in human skins and not true men at all. If they make her feel like this, imagine how Westerosi will feel. Many of them, lots of them, huge numbers of them will be terrified as she is. So right here by itself, you can see why Danny off the bat, is going to have popularity issues um, in Westeros by being the person who brings this terror to Westeros. And she has time to get used to it. She rides among them, gets this husband who, you know, they have some back and forth. Eventually, he treats her quite well. Uh, at first, she treats her, she, he treats her well and then doesn't, and then back to treating her well. But that we'll talk about that more later. But the rest of Westeros isn't going to have that. They're not going to have a chance to get used to the Dothraki. They're not going to be treated nicely for the most part. And this line, beasts in human skin, is also a nice mirror to the stark focus chapters we've been having, given how, you know, direwolf, skin changing. Anytime, that's a that's an eye-opening line. We see beasts and skin and human skin and all that. Those are, that's that's language that should make you think. The eggs, though, what's even more terrifying than maybe the Dothraki, at least to certain people, is the eggs themselves that want the eggs. The things that come out of them later, <laughs> the eggs aren't terrifying. They're beautiful. It's the dragons that are terrifying. I love the detail here. Uh, the, I thought they were beautiful on TV, but they're even more beautiful here by description. There's subtle differences, such as the scales being really tiny, whereas the TV versions, they're kind of big. Either way, the eggs are huge, uh, both on show and books. And at first, she thinks they're so rich in color that they, they appear jewel-encrusted. So she doesn't realize it's natural. So it's like, wow, these are really, really fancy, really fancy fantasy. I mean, what has an egg like that? I don't know. <laughs> maybe it's, uh, maybe it's, uh, maybe there's more maybe fancier eggs out there in the reptile world than I'm aware of. But I don't think they're jewel-encrusted. So it's really clear that we're dealing with something special here. And the weight as well, because she thinks it's going to be light and it's heavy black and red the egg that she later bonds with the most and the dragon that she flies is her colors the targaryen colors valerian come again perhaps bronze and green i never thought about it too much the bronze and green because the name Rhaegal is of course a reference to Rhaegar, and that screams Jon snow's dragon because that's his dad but 
If you want to think about the possibility of Bran controlling a dragon, look no further than the colors of the child of the, the children of the forest right here, bronze and green. Hmm? Eh? Eh. And then the third egg, pale cream and coal and gold, rather. Tyrion's hair is pale. And the gold, well, Lannister, right? That could be what we're getting at here. And in the Winds of Winter, he picks up that bloody white Sivas dragon piece. White Sivas dragon piece with blood on it. But somehow we got to have the dragon horn come into play. We got to have Euron stealing a dragon, don't we? So we've got five. I just named five riders or at least five controllers if Bran doesn't ride and only controls. And there's only three dragons. So either we have multiple riders or some of these theories are not going to pan out. I was wondering about the idea that one of them just dies before it ever has a rider. That's true, too. So it may only be two dragons for five, you know, potential theories. And one of them isn't a theory because Danny does ride Drogon. So it's really maybe only one dragon. <laughs> so it's going to be interesting. I like how George concealed that. And in a lot of stories, we would have already figured out all, you know, all this to a reasonable degree of certainty. And even after the TV show, we don't know. That's cool. I'm very glad that this is one of the things that we still have as a mystery. Interestingly, though, the chapter's written that she has the dream and then receives the eggs, but that's because it's written as a bit of a flashback. Technically, the eggs are given to her after she has this dragon dream, and the association isn't with the eggs. It's her brother. Viserys was hitting her, hurting her. She was naked, clumsy with fear. She ran from him but her body seemed thick and ungainly. He struck her again. She stumbled and fell. You woke the dragon, he screamed as he kicked her. You woke the dragon, you woke the dragon. Her thighs were slick with blood. She closed her eyes and whimpered. As if in answer, there was a hideous ripping sound and the cracking of some great fire. When she looked again, Viserys was gone. Great columns of flame rose all around and in the midst of them was the dragon. It turned its head slowly. <coughs> when its molten eyes found hers, she woke, shaking and covered with a fine sheen of sweat. She had never been so afraid. So this is also paired in the chapter, not directly, but, you know, in the same chapter, with her first ride on her silver, who, by the way, still alive in the books, dies in season two of the show. Nice to have that still around, that horse. Leaping over the fire pit, and she's not afraid during all this. It's this sense of power, and for the first time, she's not afraid. She thinks how she may have never not been afraid before. Until Viserys, you know, demands that she please call Drogo on their first night together. Like, this guy, I tell you. <laughs> so, of course, there's themes of birth and motherhood in this, uh, in this dream. Her body seemed thick, you know, thighs slick with blood. This is, uh, obviously, it obviously relates to Rago as well, but this is, you know, the dragons are what she's the mother of. And this is the point of her being sold. Completion of Viserys' transaction, right? Given how her liberations and slavers Vago later and how big slavery is in her arc in general, we can see so much of it coming back to this point. She was sold as a slave. Even though it, as far as slavery goes, it goes pretty well for her. You know, it's a, the bar is really low because she actually ends up in love, which that's obviously not what any slave can expect to get out of their life as long as they remain one. Danny rises above all that, and because she comes out of it, has the same instinct to free others from it. Of course, it's not that simple. 
She'll end up speaking to Barristan about it later in A Dance with Dragons, and the memory of this moment never goes away. The actual wedding. She's feeling isolated, lonely, nauseous. Her husband is ignoring her. She can't really even understand what anyone is saying. A dozen men were killed. She's terrified. Exactly how everyone wants to feel at their wedding. And she's afraid of how her brother will react and just, you know, causing a scene and all that. She's constantly in fear of what he'll do, always. But she's also slowly keying in on how weak he really is. When she rides her silver for the first time, also it's kind of a neat moment where he uses uh, the silver, uh, uses the, the lines of smoke and the silver of the sea. And it made me think of Sea Smoke, the dragon, which, of course, this is not intentional, but the way it's written made me think of that. And of course, jumping over the dragon when she thinks, or jumping over the, the fire pit when she thinks of her horse having wings makes me think of bitter steel. But that's not intentional either, I don't think. It's just a coincidence, but it's still cool. And as I said, it's this first bit of freedom she's experiencing only to have it snatched back away by her brother, being reminded of, of where she really is and what's really happening. Now, <clears throat> yeah, it eventually goes pretty well for Danny and Drogo as lovers. But remember what, what happens after this tender moment. She, he goes back to just being kind of brutal to her. He comes in drunk every night and just has his way with her, rides her the way she puts it, and it's painful. She's sore all the time. It's not loving. It's kind of spousal rapey, if not straight up spousal rapey. But that's what made me rethink some of this. I'm like, well, why is he so gentle here? And it, it, it dawned on me this time. It didn't dawn on me any of my previous rereads or any of my listens. He's treating her how he would treat a scared young horse. <laughs> it's, it's kind of gross. Once he's, once she's will, he's just, no, no, petting her slowly, showing no emotion. It's, he's talking to an animal. <laughs> That's how it's, it's exactly like he, he it's, a, it's, it makes sense. You know, it's gross, but it makes sense. He comes from a horse culture. Everything is horse. They eat horses. They worship horses. They ride horses. Hor- they live like horses. It's I mean, talked about. It also makes sense because they just can't communicate very well. You're what right. are they supposed to do? But but try to communicate in that way, I guess. I agree. I mean, it's not like he has other options that much, but it just strikes me that these these this is uh, there's more to this tenderness than just him trying to make her feel at ease. It's just it's what he knows about scared young creatures. <laughs> And, you know, as we said, he wins her over eventually and it's surprisingly gentle, but hey, he knows how to treat a young horse. <laughs> so it's, it transitions from, from this to much greater things. And they, they leave this big wedding scenario to go out on their own, which later is another thing we see doesn't quite work out so well. They have their wedding night alone out in under the open sky, of course, but not around other Dothraki, but amongst Kalisar, Quite often, they're just doing it out in the open. She gets used to that. But at first, it's like, what the? <laughs> that would be a thing to get used to. A couple other miscellaneous notes of this chapter jam-packed full of foreshadowing here. She's thinking how I am the blood of the dragon, she told herself. I am Daenerys Stormborn, princess of Dragonstone, of the blood and seed of Aegon the Conqueror. Princess of Dragonstone, right? She, she already recognizes that she's her brother's heir. And of course, that's important. Coming up pretty soon. A line, another line reads, above the seething sea of Dothraki. Mm. Dothraki Sea, of course. Yep. She receives some other gifts that aren't in threes. Jorah gives her books and uh, more books, right? We just got them in the Tyrion chapter. And it's books about Westeros, which that's huge because she has that disconnection. And that's why she 
it's written something like she thanked him with all of her heart. She really, really genuinely loved that gift because she's feeling so isolated. Remember, she can't, she can't even understand what people are saying at her wedding. And here's someone giving her a lifeline to Westeros. Something that I didn't note before is how it says that the Dothraki put on rich fabrics and wear perfume when visiting the free cities. But out in the Kalasar, they're doing their Kalasari stuff. And it's also mentioned in her first chapter how Khal Drogo has a manse. This feels a little bit like some early world building. Maybe got tossed aside because I don't remember anything like this later. I don't remember the Dothraki ever dressing up to look nice, to, to play up. It doesn't seem like the kind of thing they would do. Seems like they would be like, no, this is the only way we ever dress. I mean, I maybe, but we haven't seen them in Lesteros yet. So maybe that will come up as part of what we've long wanted is seeing the Dothraki mingling with cultures and all of that. I mean, if they're in the north, we would like to see them dressed accordingly. Yeah, good point. We might see that. We'll we'll see if George uh, brings that back around, ties it back in, or if not, we'll see that too. Open sky, that stuff is um, doing open things under the open sky. That's very reminiscent of um, steppe peoples, Asian steppe peoples. The Mongols come to mind. And so is a gown made from the skin of a thousand mice, which is one of the gifts she gets. That's a story uh, written about. Um, there's an anecdote in the, I believe, in the true history of the Mongols about a uh, Mongol warrior who did just that. However, in that sense, it wasn't a sign of, of wealth. It was a sign of how extremely poor life on the steppe is. It's like, this was all he had he had to make a fur for himself by killing mice because so hard to get a hold of other furs for warmth and such for discussion on whether or not the eggs here are the same stolen by Alyssa farman check out our sun chaser episode a lot is made of how alone uh, and lonely daenerys is in this chapter we've talked about it a few times already but it's super important to remember that it's also how she's felt her entire life it's it's, it's just like cat and john's relationship kind of came to a climax there in Bran's bedchamber. This is sort of the climax of her loneliness. She's been lonely all her life, and now she's being sent off into an entirely alien, foreign, scary culture. Like, how much more lonely can you get? So uh, maybe he's setting the tone for other weddings in the series as well. It's funny that this is the first wedding we get, but there's a lot of unwilling participants and death involved and hey none of them are dull affairs either really except for the ones he kind of skips over so he uh he sets the tone with weddings indeed it's also the first time we hear the line i'm the blood of the dragon a line that comes up quite a lot and as we know it's literally true we didn't know that back then we didn't even necessarily know that before fire and blood it was suspected it was highly suspected fire and blood pretty much came out and said they have dragon blood in there there's fire in that blood that burns out the diseases before they get going things like that and finally before the q a backing up to the beginning where we talked about the dothraki as very uncivilized and savage with all their public mating and the wedding stuff it it isn't really that big of a difference than a lot of what happens in westeros westeros puts these trappings of civilization on a lot of these things yet they still have this barbaric bedding ceremony and they still have war and death and murder all over the place maybe people aren't stabbing each other in the middle of a wedding regularly where it is apparently it is regular in dothraki weddings but in this story it's pretty regular (laughs) and we also have things through history like lords riding up and grabbing the bride to take them off for first night and things like that i mean some a lot of that's in the past but 
This is still the culture that gave birth to those kind of things. Never forget. Okay, questions about Daenerys too. Nina Friel, who has contributed a lot to previous episodes as well as this one, points out Illyrio's enigmatic smile. It's good for his plan that Viserys is such an aggressive but weak and unstable idiot. Remember that that Illyrio, from the get-go, is not taking uh, Viserys seriously, which is a huge clue. We don't have any indication that Illyrio knew the eggs would hatch. So, again, this whole thing is a smokescreen. We didn't necessarily know, or George didn't necessarily know early on. He hadn't necessarily plotted all of it out. He didn't hadn't necessarily decided exactly who young Griff slash Fagon would be or all that. But he did know that Varus and Illyrio were not truly backing Viserys or Daenerys, which means they had to be backing someone. And it wasn't Jon Snow. There's no hint of that. They didn't know about him. So that means it had to be someone. And that someone is the the character that eventually became young Griff as George's gardening reached that point. But the idea was there from this very beginning. At least it seems that way. That's my opinion. And my opinion is shared by many others. Your opinion may, may vary. However, going back to Nina's point, he does misjudge Viserys a little bit, though. Yes, he's weak. Yes, he's unstable. But more weak and unstable than either of them realized. He had perhaps a bit of the Targaryen madness uh, that they may not have anticipated being quite so bad. I mean, who could predict he would do the wave his sword at Khal Drogo and things like that? Just really? Yeah, I don't think Illyrio saw that coming. <clears throat> Stephanie the Peerless wonders if Viserys' impatience is a harbinger for Danny and how she will behave later. Mother Tribbles points out that it maybe seems a little bit odd that he gives dragon eggs to someone he's using as disposable. But that is part of why he wanted to make sure that the smokescreen was good. He wanted to make it believable. Giving these fancy, overly expensive gifts to someone really sells it. I mean, case in point. Some of us have trouble accepting that all along she was a smokescreen because of the dragon eggs. Well, if you turn that logic around, it shows that his plan worked. And and again, as Brian Eidolon points out, as I've already said, they were petrified eggs. He would have no, really no, no reason. There's no indication Lirio has any sort of hint about magic or any of this stuff. His partner hates magic, I remind y'all, Varus. So I really don't think he saw they would be anything other than decorative. Most of the fandom seems to agree. I can understand why some people question that, but Illyrio is staggeringly wealthy. So yeah, I understand why people would think the dragon eggs are just too much to have given away. Not so much. Not so much. Remember, he made a fortune. It's explicitly mentioned that he made a fortune in slaves for his deal. Danny even thinks about that. Like, he made so much money from this wedding, he can afford to give up the dragon eggs. It's even said in this chapter. Sneakily, but it's said. Up from under Winterfell says, I think we will get more answers about that, given Fire and Blood. Yes, I do too. Fire and Blood did give us some more answers regarding the eggs. Uh, More detail on eggs in general. Fire and Blood 2 may continue that. And the rest of the series as well, of course. Bear Island Josh mentions and a wedding with a minimum of three deaths. (laughs) And a death reddick. And John Heggie mentions a death reddick wedding without three deaths is a rather dull affair. Yep, great lines, of course. I wonder if we'll get another death reddick wedding some point later Mm -hmm. in the series. Yeah, I don't know. Obviously, if anyone didn't catch that, the three part was because of the the theme of threes. Absolutely, yes, of course. Uh, you're, you guys are right. Good catch. That's one of the most obvious ones, and I didn't include it. So, 
<laughs> Good job, y'all. Again, I repeat how awesome it is to have live viewers and y'all sending in your questions and thoughts ahead of time because nobody can catch all this stuff. Nobody. Christina Minoli, last question here, says, throughout Danny's chapters with Drogo, she is constantly noting the sounds of the bells in his hair. Yes, the bells. It is synonymous with his braid, strength, and power. The longer the braid, the louder the bells. See, I think that's a really great chat, a really great comment right there. I totally agree. I didn't I didn't think of it, and it's huge. You're right, because people, even at the time, I really should have thought, I'm kicking myself now, because at the time when people were were complaining about the TV show, like, there's no the bells in her in her background, that doesn't mean anything to her. Well, in the books, it certainly does. And of course, it also means something to John Connington. But that could end up having double meanings. George, you got us. Well done. Damn. 1996. 1996. This was written, folks. <laughs> Hell yeah. Okay, so we're about halfway here. These first three chapters, we have more to say about than the last four. But we have a lot to say about those as well. As we are, as we've set out here with Valerie Redis. We do very little in the way of shout outs and ads and such like that. That is all mostly for our live streams and our scripted episodes. But I will give a thanks to all of our patrons and donors here. Just a generic thanks without naming any specific names. Y'all make all this possible. And you get earlier access to some of these uh, live streams and stuff like that by joining. Also, we do not have... Uh, super chats because this is um, unlisted. Super chats are not possible for unlisted live streams. Yeah, we don't need to, we don't need donations during these. But if you feel the urge to be giving, PayPal.me/slash History of Westeros is the way to do. That. Or is it Westeros History? I think it's History of Westeros, right? For PayPal? Yeah. It is. Yeah, it is Westeros History. Oh, so I said it wrong then. Yeah. PayPal.me/slash Westeros History, oh. not History of Westeros. Uh, maybe we both have it wrong. Okay, well, awkward. whoops. I guess I should have gotten that straight before saying it. Anyway, yeah, we'll figure that out. I'll move on. Edard Two is our next chapter. It, it is. It is Westeros History. I checked it. Okay, I cool. looked it up right then. Paypal.me/slash Westeros History. To be clear, <laughs> thanks everybody, and thanks to Shea. Okay, so Eddard 2, when the characters go places, we tell you about those places, and that's just beginning now, because other than Pentos, everyone's been packed in Winterfell. But here in Eddard 2, they're heading south. Locations give us history, history gives us foreshadowing, yeah, and you know where that goes. And then we get our first merging of storylines, because here in Eddard 2, news of Danny's marriage arrives first thing. In this case, for our location, it's a barrow. We don't know which barrow. We don't know exactly where on the ride they are. The barrowlands are huge, but they were a seat of many first, uh, early first man kings, and that's important. So, Robert and Ned here have kind of a proto love versus duty chat. It's just a joke. They don't take it seriously. It's just you know an offhand comment by Robert, but it is the concept in a nutshell. Robert's like, eh, screw it. Let's just go. Ride off on the King's Road by ourselves, a couple of vagabond knights. What do you think? And, well, we weren't, we weren't the boys we were, Robert. And uh, I love Robert's response. You were never the boy you were. <laughs> That's one of my favorite jokey lines of the early going here. Ned also recounts some history of the rebellion, especially the part about Jamie and Ares and sitting on the throne. So first of all, though, as this chapter starts, news of stallion and dragon, the first line, 
The summons came in the hour before the dawn, when the world was still and gray. The news that Daenerys Targaryen wed Khal Drogo is surely important, but is it private news? Maybe? Robert doesn't like the idea of people knowing Viserys and Daenerys, Daenerys are out there, but there's something a little odd about this scene, which is that a rider comes in the middle of the night sent by Varys to let Robert know. Hmm. Yeah, it's a little fishy to me. I'm not sure. And I think because of what they're talking about, which is, speaking of, we learned that Danny was right to note that she'd never seen any hired knives, right? She was suspicious about that. Viserys is like, oh, yeah, Illyria, I tell you what, those hired knives, they're all over the place. But we learn here, Robert never sent any hired knives. John Aaron, who takes after Ned, or vice versa, rather opposite, Ned takes after John, was like, nah, you don't do that. You don't send assassins after little kids. That's not what we do. And Robert listened. Of course, as we know, he's going to not listen pretty soon. And he mentions now it's too late because she's under Illyria's protection. There's no mystery where this news came from. We're flat out told Jorah Mormont is a spy. So this isn't some later reveal that Jorah is like, oh, Jorah's a spy. We know right away. However, what we didn't necessarily realize is how Varus was playing both sides a little. That Varus is telling Robert all this when he didn't have to. And that he reads Jorah a certain way because of Jorah's love for his ex-wife, Lanes, who happens to look just a bit... Rather, a lot like Daenerys. So he may have known what was going to happen. Um, so we can at least reasonably guess here that Varys and Illyrio were prepared, or at least would be prepared, to react to this Dothraki invasion. They're talking about it right here. And since Varys sent this message, and since he's doing all this plotting, he knows they're going to be talking about it. But he also knows of their history. That's the part that I was that was kind of bothering me a little bit earlier and i've this isn't new to me but i've never really come down on either side of it with certainty which is that i wonder if varus wasn't playing with them a little bit here wasn't manipulating them a bit he knows about their history of arguing over dead targaryen kids and this writer arrives early in the morning when robert is annoyed and ned is sleepy and we know varus doesn't really want ned to come south we know that it's quote too soon he doesn't want the starks and lannisters going after each other not yet. So p- putting all that together, I almost think that maybe Varus was doing his job like he always does, but also sticking a little extra in there, meaning trying to drive a little extra wedge between Robert and Ned, maybe to prevent any of this from happening in the first place, maybe to drive them apart before it gets too far down the road, literally down the road in this case, as they're traveling south towards King's Landing. Varus was presumably present at that moment when Rhaenys and Aegon were laid in front of the throne in their, you know, bloody and dead and, and all that. So he almost, when I say he was aware of their arguments and their difficulties there, he may have literally been witness to it firsthand. And so it's always important to know this is a great thing that when you're rereading, you get to think about every little thing that Varus and Littlefinger and some of these other plotters are doing from the beginning because you have a lot more insight into what they're actually doing. So you get to see it play out rather than being like, oh, that's what he was doing. We get to go through it this time knowing there's a Fagon out there and knowing that Varus and Illyria have been planning for this for like 16 years or so, roughly. Another great thing to keep in mind at all times with Ned chapters is the secret of John. When you're first reading the books, you're like, oh, this promise, this Lyanna. 
Now you know what it is. You maybe don't know the exact wording of the promise, which, by the way, is still potentially very revealing. But the general idea of the promise and what Ned has been keeping secret all this time, it's just so it's such a different look. It explains so much, for example, how Ned never seems to have bad thoughts about Rhaegar. Meanwhile, Robert has huge, constant, savage thoughts about Rhaegar. Maybe that maybe that. It's part of it, right? It's it sneakily hides Ned's feelings for Rhaegar because Robert is so loud and blustery about it. And, and Ned's already kind of a quiet, you know, not loud guy in the first place. Now, red herring, but not, is what I've called this little bit. Quote from Robert, they bide their time for now, but give them half a chance. They will murder me in my bed and my sons with me. If the beggar king crosses with the Dothraki horde at his back, the traitors will join him. Okay, then. Well, if Viserys crosses, no. He's not going to cross, and neither will Khal Drogo. So that part's a red herring, because George planned to fool us in that sense. But Varys and Illyrio do want to engineer a Dothraki invasion, so he's not wrong that that is a real threat that Ned is downplaying. This is where Robert's fears are correct. But here's where things are a little wonky. They, meaning Robert, is worried that the realm will rise against the, or Robert is worried, rather, that, that many people will side with the foreign threat, not for it, which is a Targaryen, right? That's the, the problem here. Even if it's led by a Targaryen, the realm won't rise for the Dothraki. That's where Robert is wrong. That's, in fact, what Varys and Illyria are banking on. That's the point. They expect the realm will unite against a foreign threat, which is... Bad news for Danny, right? All this time, she's bringing this army, gathering this army over several books. And we know from this very early chapter that this was Varys and Illyrio's plan all along because they knew the realm would rise against that. That's why they want Robert gone before that happens. They don't want Robert to be the one to fight back against that menace. That makes him the hero. And getting rid of him is part of the plan here. So. The son of Rhaegar versus the son of the Mad King is what they originally had in mind. And of course, they knew the realm would be like, yay, son of Rhaegar, not yay, son of the Mad King who's got Dothraki with him. But what it looks like they're getting is daughter of the Mad King. Whether or not she's mad or not is irrelevant at this point, because a lot of people will see it that way, whether she is or not. And of course, the other wrinkle here is the whole dragon part. <laughs> so... A lot of things did not go according to plan, but the things they expected are really interesting in where they're, where they're actually going, and they're still going. Uh, and Robert's thoughts and Ned's thoughts are really funny, considering everything that comes afterwards. And one of the uh, many reasons Eddard doesn't like the idea of murdering young Danny is that, well, he's protecting his own young Targaryen. It's very personal, even beyond the argument they had in front of the throne with those kids uh, Aegon and Rhaenys laid in front of him. That was before he even knew about Jon Snow. So he only got more mad and more protective of young kids afterwards. And the line, he had lived his lies for 14 years, yet they still haunted him at night comes up here. And at this point, it's a bit confusing because what lies are you talking about? You know, a really astute reader would be like, well, wait a second. He told Catelyn. The only thing he may have lied about is who the mother was. And that's not that big a deal if he's admitting it's a, his kid and all that. 
So, yeah, so this is a clue that something's not quite right. And, of course, we know what that is. Hmm, we know exactly. So we get the mention of Wyla. She's not actually John's mother, but she's still important. So this is another red herring, but still important. It's not that she's John's mother. It's that she knows things, and she's, well, probably still alive. It's a great open question that we can't answer. Is Willa still alive? She was Edric Dane's milk mother, so not too long ago she was alive, but that's still a lot of time has passed since then. Edric Dane, of course, tells Arya this bit in A Storm of Swords. So she might know about John and Ashara Dane, whatever there is to know about Ashara Dane, that is. And yeah, so that's really neat. And on the subject of, say, the boys we were, <laughs> talking about that, Robert is a man who derives everything happy from the past. He's talking about all these, he's even thinking about it, even in that little microcosm of a moment there, where he's thinking about all these different girls. He's like, oh, no, Meryl, oh, no, that was one of mine. Oh, he's just thinking, he's just going through these different women in his head, and it's making him smile, because he's like, oh, yeah, she was nice looking, and oh, yeah, she had real big tracts of land, and, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And Ned is like, nah, I don't want to talk about this, man. So it's a great point. This is something that Joe put in our notes, and it's a really good point. Robert's just reminiscing. And the past sucks for Ned, though. I mean, the extreme past was cool when they were growing up with John Aaron before the war. That, he likes that part. But everything after it sucks. His brother gets strangled. His dad gets burned. He has to keep the secret. His sister dies in childbirth. It's awful. The war. Now he's keeping, now he's, now he's forced to lie about it all afterwards, too. And of course, Lyanna, no conversation about Ned's bastard and killing Targaryens in a place of death is complete without bringing up Lyanna again. Promise me, Ned, again, flashes through his mind, but we're like, we don't know what to promise. We still don't exactly know what the promise is other than it involved keeping John safe, which certainly involves keeping the secret because as we see here, Robert, well, we don't know what Robert would have done, but it wouldn't have been a good thing. The next time he thinks of the phrase, promise me, Ned, it's going to be under somewhat similar circumstances. It's going to be when he's woken up, just as he was at the beginning of this chapter. But at this time, it'll be, it'll be Eddard 12, all the way to Eddard 12, 10 more chapters from here. He's going to find Robert dying, and Robert's going to say, promise me Ned himself later in the chapter. So that is really going to come back many times and hit really hard in, in a lot of ways. And I want to talk about that because of Robert's death here. The symbolism here, the foreshadowing is so powerful, but also kind of over the top, but in a way that's also easy to miss. It's both over the top and easy to miss. How do you do that? Well, that's the skill of George R. R. Martin. Okay, so back up to Ned's first chapter, right? They, he and Robert go straight to the crypt, right? <laughs> the crypt. Hmm, okay. Death, cold, yeah. Here they go straight headlong. Robert is rushing headlong so fast, Ned can barely keep up. Robert outraces his guards. That's a little symbolic, right? And Ned can't even be heard. Ned yells something and Robert can't hear him. They keep going. They're racing just headlong into who knows where. And when they stop, where are they? A freaking graveyard. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> so great. First a crypt, then a barrow. I mean, hello, these guys are doomed. <laughs> so, mm, yeah, good one, George. So basically, it seems to come up for Ned that Liana memories happen when there's like times of stress. And this one is the first time of many when he's in the North dealing with regular stress, like night's watch running off, which if he knew the full story, that would stress him out a lot more. But since he just eh, pushes it off to the wildlings and, and their stuff, it's not as scary as it could be. 
This, however, these memories, this trauma, there's no shaking that. There's, there's no doubt how, you know, he sees Leanna in his mind in their bed of blood and, and all this, the horrors of war. It, it's trauma. This, and you don't just live that down. Um, yeah. Both of them deeply affected by Leanna's death. Even Robert. That's one thing that Robert is, seems to be. I mean, Robert, he, he seems to would experience trauma in a, in a different way. Uh, because of the way man he is, but he rages like a storm over this, and Ned is quiet and reserved. And but they're both deeply affected by Liana's death. I think that it's fair to say maybe Robert was more in love with the idea of Liana than the actual Liana. He didn't ever really get to know her, and if he knew her, he would know that he wasn't a good fit for her. Maybe, probably, but that doesn't change the fact that his feelings are real here. He is really deeply affected by it. He may have the wrong impression, but it, his feelings are still authentic. And maybe there's a bit of an early, another hint of R plus L equals J here. When the, the idea of the quote unquote memory of his sister being raped, quote hundreds of times, doesn't even stir anything in him because well, it didn't happen. That was consensual. So, uh, uh, Beyond the crypt barrow grave foreshadowing, riding hard, outracing protection, and not listening, just all that. And Ned's final thought there amongst the, the barrows is a man could not always be where he belonged, though. Yeah, and he's, he belongs in Winterfell, probably. And yeah, he, doesn't, he definitely doesn't belong with, you know, out there. With Robert is where he thinks he belongs, though. Yeah, he's tied to that chair the iron the uncomfortable iron chair is calling calling him back and it's connected to john a little bit too and his ride later in the book when john kind of runs off he it becomes a character who has to look back on his lost youth now that he's in a position of power though he also has an exhilarating horse ride of his own running you know riding away from his brothers but he does so largely successfully robert looks back and struggles doesn't accept the past. Robert is still kind of living in the past in a lot of ways. He still has the same hates and loves and just hasn't gotten over them. Ned hasn't gotten over them either, but for different reasons. And yeah, here's another little maybe foreshadowing. Robert says, no woman wants Baylor the Blessed in her bed. Is that a coincidental name drop or a nod to Ned being executed at Baylor's Sept? You decide. Ned is also right here to not trust Jorah. He's like, are we listening to the slaver now? And well, he was right to, because uh, Jorah is not a very good spy. He's not a double agent. He goes to triple agent, right? He saves Daenerys from the assassin and joins her and helps her. And yeah, maybe he's in it for himself, but it's from Ned and Robert's point of view, he didn't work out. Ned would. Ned said he'd prefer him to be a corpse. Robert says... Varus says spies are more useful than corpses, but in this case, the corpse would have been more useful. <laughs> uh, the line, a bold man to wield it, send her a knife and a bold man to wield it. Some people think maybe that's a Jorah, I mean, not a Jorah, but a Barrison the Bold reference, that he might be the one to kill Daenerys. I don't know about that. I think it does, I do think Barristan is not unlikely to switch sides, but assassinating Danny, like becoming a Kingslayer, that I just don't think so. I don't think Barristan's going to kill a little girl because that's kind of how he sees her. I mean, she's going to be a woman by the time this would happen, but still he sees her that way. Yeah, I don't, I don't, that's not Barristan. I don't think so. Now we have some, some more foreshadowing. Again, the early ideas of, of Jamie being king was the original plan. And that's what a lot of this 
Robert, Ned, fear of Jamie being warden of the West and East, which culminates in Ned talking about Jamie sitting on the throne and how he was sitting there waiting. And Robert says, oh, come on. It's just he didn't have anywhere to sit. Killing Kings is, you know, makes you tired. He's just he kind of plays it off. And we play it off, too, because that was abandoned foreshadowing. But in the, the, George's original intent was for this to mean something. So that's interesting. <laughs> Why didn't Robert name Stannis Warden of the East? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, resigned Eddard Stark, put his boots into his horse and set off after the king. Yeah, that, that's just it, isn't it? Most everything Robert does, he's just resigned to follow. Except when it comes to killing the kids. That's the one thing that Ned is like. That is where I draw the line. And of course, we'll get to that when we get to that. So let's one last note before the questions. Their conversations follow a bit of a pattern that gradually wears thin as uh, matters of state kind of cross into personal issues like killing children. The conversation will start with a shared joke or memory. In this case, the desire to burn Cersei's wheelhouse where Ned is like, yeah, I'll light the torch with you, buddy. And then... They push that to the side by Robert pushes it to the side, then something joking. And then, you know, you get the feeling that they're together, but then something bad comes up that they're not on the same side about. And that's where they're going to end up. Eddard Q&A here. Eddard 2 Q&A. We wonder, you know, the whole thing with Jorah makes me wonder, it wasn't a Tairashi slaver going all the way to Bear Island, because why would they go there? But anyone, any merchant from Tyrosh would probably have at least a finger or like Lirio has said about him by Tyrion, a whole hand in the slave trade because, hey, it's those are goods that are sold there. If you're a Tyrosh trader, that's probably how you see it. So he probably came there for other reasons. And, and Jorah's like, hey, you guys do slaving, right? Hmm, why don't you take these guys? And so I, I, just a little world building note there. Comment from our Flick group from Abrams says, uh, Robert has bursts of laughter, anger, sadness, shame, defiance, regret, hate, and longingness in just one chapter. He is truly a storm king. Yeah, right on. Good catch. That's a great aspect of his personality. And really that comes into play with so many of the other Baratheons we see throughout history. Because, hey, the seed is strong, right? Stephanie the Peerless says, you can already tell a suspicious lack of Rhaegar hate from Ned. Yeah, we pointed that out a little earlier, but it's worth repeating. And it's also, uh, I think I want to add to that by saying, the, re, re, well, I guess I said it already, but I'll repeat it. Ned's stoic demeanor kind of conceals that a bit. You would think maybe he's just not the type to have these wild, angry thoughts about Rhaegar. But later we learn the truth. Well, he doesn't have angry thoughts about Rhaegar because yeah, he doesn't really have that big a problem with Rhaegar. Minge Forever says, how is it that Robert was such a tool before he visits Winterfell? He decided to give away Aaron's heir to Tywin, the Warden of the East to Jaime, all those squires, etc. Meanwhile, he pushes everyone around when we see him. Yeah, he is really weak with his wife. He just doesn't, she wears him down. He's just uh, doesn't want to stand up to her, doesn't want to deal with her. And he says that, he jokes about that earlier, but I was like, oh, you would, it's easy for you to say, you don't have a Lannister in your bed. Uh, it's like Joe said, it's, it's, it's a lot of these things are brought up jokingly, but they're serious. Robert really does have a problem standing up to Cersei. Um, and, uh, but not just about anyone else. 
Yeah, John Hagee says, Jorah was not exiled. Ned was going to Bear Island with ice to bring King's justice. Then Jorah fled. Yeah, that's right. That's a good point. He considers himself exiled, <laughs> but he's not exiled. He's, his, his exile was self-imposed because the alternative was execution. Good point. Good clarification there. Absolutely. Uh, Marilyn Sand says, as Robert laughs about Jamie's sitting on the throne, a flock of ravens take flight. So they were not actually out of air, earshot for Blood Raven. Oh, yeah, right on. And the laughing reminds me of the laughing storm. Yep, good point. We've got that. A couple people noticing that Robert acting like the Storm King in so many ways. And Helen O'Grady says, that's interesting. I think it shows Robert as quite the manipulator. Always share a laugh before bringing up the hard stuff. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, Robert, he seems shallow and, and manipulating people like that. Maybe it doesn't seem like it's in his heh, wheelhouse. But, you know. Maybe, uh, yeah, maybe it's just his way. He's not, uh, he's not super subtle with the manipulations, but um, yeah, bring up a joke, then to get it seriously. Yeah, yeah, good catch there, Mar- uh, Helen. Okay, let's go to Tyrion too. What I said about this last chapter in the history of places, it has an exception here. The landscape is described, but it's mostly all wilderness, fairly bleak, not a space, not a place with specific history to it. Instead, Tyrion reads about Dragonbone, and tells John about his dreams of dragons. Ghost moves silently again. John faces the truth of what the Night's Watch really is, and Benjamin Stark is not a fan of Tyrion. The first line of the chapter is, The North went on forever. Is that a just a statement of how long it is? Tyrion's like, oh man, this trip is long, or is it? Is that a statement on the lands of always winter? I mean, we don't know how far the map goes, we don't know how far the lands of always winter really are. It probably isn't forever, like literally, but it might be what George is doing here, giving us one of his many double, triple, quadruple meaning statements. Ah, the lucky books. Tyrion got permission from Eddard to take some books from the Winterfell Library. Considering the library gets set on fire, these books got lucky. And ironically, the first book he's reading is a book on Dragonbone, which Dragonbone is immune to fire. Too bad the books aren't immune to fire. And he's also mentioned uh, a little more cross-pollination uh, of plot lines here. Ned and Robert discussed the Dothraki quite a bit. And here we get a casual mention that dragonbone bows are preferred by the Dothraki. Hmm. Yeah, just tying a few little world-building pieces together here and there, knowing, um, letting us know that people like Tyrion and others are aware of the Dothraki. Some foreshadowing here. For three days of travel, there's a lot of people along the King's Road. Tyrion notes that it's pretty bustling. There's, there's a lot of population there and that's just sad when you think about how how many mouths to feed that is how many potential whites that is so yeah scary uh in a sense there also really neat is the mention of a three thousand year old skull how cool is that Ooh, three thousand year old skull that's something that probably predates house targaryen something that they maybe acquired uh, an ancient family heirloom but that is really cool. I wonder how big it is compared to the other skulls. It's not really mentioned. Just like the heart tree's eyes and the eyes of the stone kings in the crypt, Tyrion thinks of the dragon eyes following him and watching him as he's moving around in the great underground of the Red Keep. Of course, Tyrion thinks about the Field of Fire, which, well, it's like I said, it's a kind of an unusual place for him to be thinking about the Field of Fire here in the frozen north and the cold, but... There's a lot of ice and fire interplay here, not the least of which is him talking to Jon Snow. Dreams of dragons. Hmm, fitting that Tyrion should think on his fascination with dragons while he's sitting across the fire from a person who's also a dragon. 
And isn't that something? So between the Field of Fire and these Dreams of Dragons and Jon Snow's presence, you got a lot of dragon foreshadowing. And all of a sudden, we have Tyrion maybe in his proper foreshadowing place, switching to the Targaryen side of things with a streak of Stark rather than the Stark side of things, you know, the wolfishly stuff that we saw earlier. Tyrion also thinks, had I been born a peasant, they might have left me out to die or sold me to some slaver's grotesquerie. Well, that is what happens to him, not as a boy, not as a kid, or because he was a peasant, but he and Penny, as slaves, are both sold to the Yellow Whale, a collector of grotesqueries. Well, a grotesquerie. He has a grotesquerie. And that comes to us from both Stephanie the Peerless and Andrea Chambers from our Facebook group. I missed that uh, reference, and it is a good one. So, mm, another R plus L equals J uh, playing here. We have John saying, or looking, uh, as Tyrion observes, has the long, stark face, if not the name, long, solemn, guarded, a face that gave nothing away. Whoever his mother had been, she had left little of herself in her son. Or all of herself in her son, because there's no hint of his father. Or is there? The solemn and guarded part fits for Ned. That is what his face looks like, and that is what Tyrion's keying in on, because he's presumably seen Ned. Not presumably, he has seen Ned. But that's also what Rhaegar's face looks like, solemn and guarded. He wasn't a real happy dude. He wasn't a, a, a Brandon Stark type, real animated and energetic, you know, fiery. He was kind of like Ned in a lot of ways. Huh, how about that? So when John and Tyrion return from their talk, of course, they were a little off the beaten path, having a conversation a little farther away. Benjen admonishes John and says, I thought the others took you, which is, you know, he's kind of joking, but that's apparently what's going to happen to Benjen. And, you know, he did disappear. We get a clue from the TV show that isn't, it's definitely not going to be what we get in the books, but it might be similar so it could go otherwise for Benjamin. Maybe it wasn't the others or something. Like, but I just refuse to believe that the wildlings got him. Come on. No, the mere wildlings did not get John. I mean, Benjamin. No way. I don't think so. <laughs> it's going to take the top, the top of the top bad guys to get Benjamin. And that's the others. Another sort of strange hidden thing here, like a little m missing reference, not a missing reference, but a little unusual bit. Remember how Darren was spelled wrong in the book or differently? Well, here we have Vagar spelled with an extra H in it. Uh, don't, know what that, don't know what's up about that. I guess George hadn't decided maybe, or I'm not sure, but just pointing that out for the heck of it. Once again, Ghost is silent, and it's written very much the way Arya is in, uh, in season eight. <laughs> he didn't know where she came from. He didn't, it's the, or rather the way John, it's written from uh, Tyrion's point of view about Ghost. Didn't hear him, didn't see him, didn't know where he came from. <laughs> <laughs> all that. And John faces the truth of the Night's Watch. This is perhaps the real crux of the chapter, at least the overtones. For As far as our point, we've been discussing a lot of the undertones, a lot of the foreshadowing, a lot of the hidden stuff. But this is the, the front, like the, the head, the, the stuff that's meant to be seen and more obvious. We've had this prologue and the stark biased views of the Night's Watch and his duty. But here we get Tyrion's view, an alternative look at what's going on with the watch and he is a lot more critical a lot more honest about it and a lot more blunt we get to see yorin and his two recruits a couple of rapers yorin isn't exactly uh 
the kind of sight you want to see, but he turns out to be a decent guy. But those two recruits, I mean, they're rapers and they're rapers. That's it. They're terrible. Makes it quite interesting for the reader. As we know, Tyrion is wrong and that there's much worse than Grump. He's wrong about their duty. Like it is a noble calling in that they really do face serious dangers, but he's wrong or right about who the Night's Watch is, who it's made up of. But he's also wrong that they're not capable of doing great things. So, yeah, it's not like a lot of things that someone in the story declares to be somewhat simple. It's not. Backing up the R plus L equals J ice and fire theme ology, not themeology this time, actual themeology this time of this chapter, John staring into the flames. Mm, yep, there we go. And it was mentioned earlier in the chapter that Tyrion stared into the flames as he thought about dragons and burning his family and all that. And John is like, whoa. And Tyrion accuses him of having similar thoughts. And John's like, no, I would never. And he's like, oh, yeah, Catelyn was real nice to you, I bet. Mm-hmm. So Tyrion's very, very perceptive. He, in fact, he says, come now, you've had the same dreams. And, well... John hasn't had violent dreams. He, he hasn't thought about, say, killing Catelyn or killing Rob. He hasn't had those thoughts. He's had thoughts of them being dead and realizing what that means. But it's not really addressed until A Storm of Swords. It's uh, more of a thing for later. And at that, Tyrion Lannister smiled sadly and went to bed. The last line of the chapter. So let's do some Q&A for Tyrion too. First off, a shout out to... Uh, our friends over at the Nauticast podcast, perfect time to mention them because I was a guest on their show for this chapter. So to hear me expand on some of the historical themes like the Field of Fire and uh, a few other things like perhaps Dragonbone stuff. I think I talked about that more as well. Check that episode out. That's Emmett Booth and Brendan B. Fish. They go through each chapter one by one. They are making their way through Game of Thrones. So they'll be doing this for a while, and they are doing a great job. It's really fantastic. They're both really good at uh, analyzing, in particular, lots of things, but in particular, uh, authorial intent and plot arcs and, and things like that. They're both, they both have a very much authorial feel to their approach as writers themselves. Okay. Um, from Jolene Rochelle in our Facebook group, she says, John, Tyrion pisses off John in a manner similar to how he pisses off young Griff. In both cases, it's about hard lessons and hard truths. That's a very good catch. For John, the Night's Watch stuff is here, which we see. It's very easy to, we've just seen. For Fagon, it's, you know, the whole begging to your auntie and talking about how Danny won't marry him. And, well, he's not her nephew. And she's likely to want to marry John, her actual nephew. Huh. <laughs> That's funny. Christina Minoli says, I like Tyrion grasping with his Lannister identity. When it came to borrowing Benjen's coat, the Lannisters never declined, graciously or otherwise. The Lannisters took what was offered. Yeah. Later, he says, Jon Snow offered to help him hand, or help, offered a hand to help him over a tangle of roots, but Tyrion shook him off. He would make his own way, as he had all his life. Which is very true. That's, I like how that is a confusing bit of his Lannister identity, because it's also a sign of his privilege. He, he says he would make his own way, as he, as he had all his life. Yet, what is he doing here? He went off to read while his servants made a shelter and cook him dinner, and he gets back. He's like... More pepper <laughs> making his ear. He is making his own way. More pepper is really rare and for rich people only in this setting. So he's like more pepper while he's nor- like in this frozen landscape thinking about how he's making his own way. 
while someone else made his fire for him, his dinner. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Perspective, folks. Perspective. <laughs> We've got another question in this section from Brian Adelon. Oh, okay. Who yeah. asks, sorry about the subject matter in advance, but what's the deal with rapers versus rapists? Even individual characters switch between using them. Like, Tyrion uses rapers here, but rapists later. Um, huh. Which your one thing someone might say is that dialects are different, but right there you see an issue with that. Um, I will say that, you know, the the difference, there, there's a lot of differences between the two words, but one of the main ones is a raper is, is someone who has done it. A rapist is someone who is a habitual offender. Oh, okay. It's more likely. But I actually I thought it was the other way around. I thought a raper was a repeat offender, yeah, no, but, yeah, but no. I believe you. Okay. Anyways, um, just that Bad bit of way. clarification, but I think it's just inconsistent. I wish it was inconsistent character versus character, but... It might be a little more the George settling into the language for these characters. It's yeah. like that, like for, that line, the, the, world. Yeah. the Lannisters never declined graciously or otherwise. Kind of seems out of place for their highfalutin rich people ways. Like, rich people, do rich people really act like I'll take whatever's offered? <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't seem quite right. But um, I, I, I write that, yeah. So I think that's part, more part of George just hadn't quite gotten these characters. It's like season one of a lot of TV shows where they, some of the characters say things that are a little off from that from any from all future seasons but in this case of course we're dealing with the books mm-hmm. but same same concept okay catlin three coming up here catlin's grief ends as she and summer defend brand from a crude assassin wielding the plane but far from crude ordinary cat's paw dagger cat resolves to head south to tell ned what she's learned about this attempted murder while the rest of us grieve over all those burned books Quote, Ned and the girls were eight days gone when Maester Lewin came to her one night in Bran's sick room, carrying a reading lamp and the books of account. She thinks of him as a gray rat, a phrase Lady Barbary Dustin will use much later, much later. And Rob tells her that Bran needs to hear the dire wolves with songs associated with the children of the forest and this being a song of ice and fire. We got to take note of the songs, even those sung by the dire Wrong evidence, right conclusion is what I'm going to call this part. So Kat figures out that Bran was thrown and assumes the same people wanted to finish the job. Completely logical conclusion, right? But wrong. But so what? Given that both Tyrion and Jaime conclude the murderer was Joffrey, yeah. So it was the Lannisters. Just wasn't the Lannister she thought, and it wasn't a plan. It was just Joffrey kind of doing his thing. Some would argue, and I can see why, they thought it was Littlefinger. He has the motive. He has, and he lies about the dagger later. And he's clearly already begun plotting. He's already blamed the death of John Aaron on the Lannisters. So the idea of putting Stark versus Lannister is right there. But the notion that he could react to Bran's fall is too much. He has agents in the King's Party, surely, but he couldn't have seen this coming. And if he wanted to kill a Stark to cause a rift between the Starks and the Lannisters, he could just have ordered that. Why wait for one to fall out a window just have one of them killed and blame the lannisters you don't need a an accident first just do it that's uh, still the same thing's still going to happen they're still going to blame the lannisters Littlefinger spies can't use ravens right so it's not like he can they can it's not like his agent can be like oh, brand fell out a window what do i do message comes back kill him i don't think so <laughs> that's just that the timeline just does not support that kind of thing and let alone the risk of messages like that. 
The only person that we could involve in this would be Lewin, because that would be someone who could use Ravens. That would be someone who could facilitate that. But there is no reason to suspect Lewin here, even though the box that uh, was given that had the fake message about uh, Lysa and the, the fake murder did come from Lewin. He's the one who said, hey, this box was left on my table. But if there was anything, if Lewin ever had anything to do with any of this, there would have been something else pointing to it. And he dies without that ever coming up again. So, cat's paw? Question mark. Given the introduction of the, this dagger and the way it's used in the TV show, we should give it additional consideration. We are of the opinion that it is the, well, in the TV show, we coined the phrase law of conservation of actors and law of conservation of plot lines because that's what they did a lot. They would merge things to, to save themselves time and because they didn't have enough time. So this is the law of conservation of Valyrian steel blades here. We, we are wondering, you know, Dark Sister could come into play. We know it's in Blood Raven's cave or at least that he took it with him to the wall, so it's probably in Bloodraven's cave. And it seems to really be named for her, right? Dark Sister just sounds like Arya. However, she already has Needle, and a dagger is kind of a better fit for her arsenal, like, you know, a, a short sword and a dagger, not a short sword and a longer short sword. I don't know. I mean, Dark Sister doesn't have to do... And, and that's the other thing here. Dark Sister has nothing to do with any sort of murder attempt on Bran, right? So that part doesn't work if it's going to come full circle and the dagger is going to be used to save Bran later, then Dark Sister's got nothing to do with that. It wouldn't be full circle in that regard. But maybe that's just what the TV show wanted to do. They invented their own little thing. So even though Littlefinger didn't send the assassin, he did lie about who the owner was, which did cause all kinds of trouble. It led Cat to seize Tyrion, which led to Tywin unleashing hell on the Riverlands via Gregor and Sir Armory Lorch and their ilk, like the Brave Companions and all of them. Things only escalated from there, as we know. We'll get to that chapter eventually and the other related chapters. But the point is that, like we saw in the show, Bran confirmed what Sansa and Arya and the others knew but couldn't prove with regard to Littlefinger's many deceptions. So maybe the cat's paw dagger will still come back around and slit his throat. Uh, It might be the lie that ends up burying him. And that would be interesting for the first lie Littlefinger tells on screen to be the one that undoes him many books later. But again, it it kind of fits. You can kind of see why George would do that because, again, planned as a trilogy? Uh, Tie these things together a little quicker? I don't know. But but you can see why there's a bit of a conundrum here with Dark Sister and the Cat's Bot Dagger. Maybe they both have these meaningful plots, but we still have Needle to contend with as well. Maybe Arya just has this giant, she just has a dark sister, needle, cat's paw dagger, a Valyrian steel armor, a dragon bone bow, the crown of Aegon the Conqueror, why not? An aircraft carrier, Arya craft carrier, sorry. So, yeah, I don't know. A lot of, it's interesting, it's, it's cool, it's kind of like the dragon rider mystery. Even though we have all these plot elements, things that definitely seem to point certain directions, it doesn't quite all line up in a way that we can predict at all. So that's nice. We have, we have, uh, Things to look forward to. Surprises to look forward to. And uh, some extra notes here. The fact that both Catelyn and John end up with hand injuries early on, protecting someone else. In both cases, John protecting the Lord Commander, Bran, uh, Catelyn protecting her son. They're both forever flexing them and remembering about that moment and that injury. Just think it's kind of cool that those two have that connection and they don't have a lot of connections and, uh, yeah, they're not fans of each other either. So, George, very sneaky connection between the two of them there. Love that. You know, cats and dogs don't normally get along. 
applies for cats and wolves too. Good call. Good call. Okay. Um, where was I? So we have some foreshadowing in the Godswood, but first we have a line of that boy's been acting queer regarding Hodor. And Joe Buckley suggests maybe Hodor is acting strangely because Bran's mind is currently filled with three-eyed crow stuff, you know, like, and Bran is shooting his powers out here and there and Hodor is someone he's associated with. The problem with that, I suppose, is that Hodor isn't really that associated with Bran yet. So they're not super, they're not, you know, Bran isn't being carried around by Hodor yet. H- H- Bran just kind of is aware of Hodor, this big dude that can lift anvils that's simple-minded. Uh, he's in Bran's dream, which we see later, but, you know, in Bran 3. But yeah, it's possible. You know, yo, it, it, I'm of the opinion that you should always pay, or rather that it always pays to consider if Bloodraven is involved. <laughs> Maybe Blood Ravens involved. Like, for example, in the Robert and, and Ned scene, there was gray mists all around those barrows and the ravens taking off. There's that's definitely some Blood Raven uh, vibes there for sure. I just want to point out, I think the line that boy's been acting queer is very funny to me because obviously many, many, many years later, they cast Christian Nairn as Hodor and he's gay. <laughs> so i just i'm just really tickled by that acting queer yeah. Yeah. anyways <laughs> uh, excellent yeah. excellent fun coincidence so i think this is kind of neat also a little di- a little um little dichotomy here catelyn doesn't like the godwood the first line of her entire arc is catelyn never liked this godwood but she recognizes it as the safest place to have a secret conversation which well the three-eyed crow is probably listening, but he's not going to, he already knows all this. <laughs> so you're not spilling any secrets to him. Rob's angry declaration of drawing his sword only to be admonished severely also reminds us that he, like Joffrey, who he was trying to spar with earlier, is still young, despite the great job he's doing of putting on a brave lordly face. But let's not too dwell, let's not dwell too much on how nicely Rob is turning out. Hmm, sigh. And, like Arya in John 2, we get some hints that Rob is a step ahead in the direwolf game. He can tell their howls apart, right? He can, uh, Rob tells, the, can know which howls hit which and all that. And uh, this kind of gives us more evidence that Rob, too, had the skin changer bond. There's more evidence for it later, which we will point out when we get to it. And he, this also, this whole business here, Bran being down in this bed and Catelyn being out of it is a big part of Rob taking the lead and his growth as a leader, which of course proves huge later when he really takes the lead. So it's kind of in behind the scenes, but it's building to something really important. Quote, Winterfell may have need of all its swords soon and they had best not be made of wood. And that's of course a callback to the yard between Rob and Joffrey. And it's referring to how Cat says, I see my son is wearing a sword now, and Sir Roderick says, it's time. Of course, it wasn't exactly time because he pulls his sword out and waves it around, and Roderick talks to him like, damn it, boy, you know, don't draw your sword unless you're going to use it. So he still needs a few lessons, which is the point. He's wearing a sword now, but he's not actually a man yet. He's just part there. He's on his way to man, crossing that bridge, so to speak. Here's another oh boy line. Theon Greyjoy put a hand on the hilt of his blade and said, My lady, if it comes to that, my house owes yours a great debt. Whew, a great debt. Uh, Oh, from Balon's point of view, it's a debt to be paid in blood. It's fitting that Theon is confused about that too, because he'll be confused about it later as well. And of course, what he's referring to is if it comes to that, which it means 
war between the Starks and Lannisters. And indeed, it does come to that, and Balon does owe their house a great debt, and he does pay it in blood. As soon as the Stark army goes south, Balon attacks the north. Man, good one. At the beginning of this chapter, Catelyn's a sleepless, grief-stricken mess, and by the end, she is determined and energetic. It sets a precedent for the rest of Cat's story. She's going to be pummeled with more and more news that wants to send her back to the north, but she only resists because of what nearly happened to Bran because of it. And because of this supposed failure of being Lady of Winterfell, she goes into full Tully duty mode, right? Tully duty and duty to her family, which is Catch-22, because if she'd been in her right mind, she would have gone to that library and helped fight the fire, which would have meant Bran was killed by the assassin. So it's all kind of confusing in her head. The emotions and the logic behind it all, too. So she's pushing herself too hard after not pushing herself at all. It's like a lot of this guilt over being not the noble lady she's supposed to be about not being there for her mother, about leaving Rickon uh, to his own devices. And Rob's complaining, says, even Rickon, Rickon needs you, Mom. You know, and she feels guilty about all that. So all this determination results in a very declarative final sentence of this chapter, which is, and then she thought we shall see what she shall. We shall see. I can't even say it. And then she thought we shall see what we shall see. Yeah. And this also is a bit of a turnaround. She starts to accept a few things. She doesn't, you know, accept John or things like that, but she does accept the direwolves after she seeing what summer does. And Rob is like, yeah, and leave the direwolf in here. Catelyn's like, Yes, 110% yes. From from here on out, she is a always have your direwolves with you, kids, type of person. And as we see, that does not happen. And it does have serious consequences. Again, Catelyn's instinct towards the supernatural elements proves correct, even though she was off on the wrong foot. And wrong about other stuff. <laughs> Her instincts about other people, always not so great. But that is the humanity in her. She is not perfect. And again, we got to spare some a thought for those books. Even Kat, in her grief, spared a thought for those books after first being thankful that the fire wasn't coming for Bran. Across the bailey, long tongues of flame shot from the windows of the library. She watched the smoke rise into the sky and thought sadly of all the books the Starks had gathered over the centuries. Yeah, it's more than centuries, too. It's the it's, it's eons. Damn. <laughs> So, Catlin 3 Q&A, let's do that. We've got a few here. The chat on both Facebook and Flick was very much about the books. <laughs> Safan writes, RIP to the only complete copy of Armadon's Engines of War that Tyrion had ever seen. And it's all worse because given this wasn't a Lannister plot, it was just Joffrey on his own, most likely. And it was him. This is another reason to hate this little kid, Joffrey. He probably was like, oh, we'll start this diversion by burning the books. Man. Ugh. Shout out to, speaking of Flick, I want to give a shout out to a couple of people who have been contributing a lot. Uh, that would be Raven Tree and Tree Girl, both of y'all with your related names. Um, not, not intentionally, I don't think. Not as far as I know. Have been contributing quite a lot. Join the conversation on Flick, which now has the uh, podcast RSS feed attached to it. So it's a little more convenient. Stefan Buman says, this is a fantasy setting, but it's so applicable to IRL here, especially the stuff with Catelyn. And this line he cites, a lot of other people cite it as well. It's a really wonderful, succinct, sarcastic, telling line. 
referring to Ned going south. He had no choice, he had told her, and then he left, choosing. Great line. Damn. (laughs) And true. She's totally right. It was a choice, especially after what they learned. At one point, he's like, she even, you know, said her piece and then had different evidence later uh, because of the whole dagger thing. Well, not the dagger specifically, but the the attempt on Bran. And knowing that, uh, even though it wasn't true, knowing that the Lannisters killed John Aaron. Bear Allen Josh says, not to split hairs, but needle is technically a small sword, longer than a short sword, but for thrusting only. Ah, okay, yeah. And I believe someone else referred to it as like an epée, maybe. It was a, similar to an epée because it doesn't really have an edge, but it does have a point. Um, yeah, a short sword is not, you're right, it's not properly a short sword. A short sword is more of a smaller long sword, like the long sword and short sword are the kind of the variations of each other. Good correction there. I never, um, never object to going further into detail and being technically correct, as they say on Futurama, technically correct is the best kind of correct. <laughs> Abraham Gabeyu says, you think Needle will be shattered by a white walker or get broken or destroyed in some way? It might be. In fact, that might be how we sort of get that false foreshadowing about her clutching Needle, uh, you know, cold in the snow and all that, or found her being found like that. See, my question is, I, I feel like... If she has Valyrian steel or something, if she has a way to defend herself otherwise, she should know better than to use needle. But maybe that is taken from her and all she has left is needle. needle. Hmm. Uh, so that would be my question is why she would ever use that in a situation where she has a better tool. I guess one thing could be fighting with two swords. Yeah. But you're right. That is a conundrum. You're right. You're definitely right. Like if she has Dark Sister and she's facing down White Walkers, she's using Dark Sister. Not needle, mm-hmm. but unless she's using both. But if but if she has the cat's paw dagger and dark sister, she's using those two and not needle. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So needle might George may have given himself a bit of a a bit of a writing conundrum with going from needle to dark sister. Because here's another thing we can recall: early on, old Nan mentions that iron is is a you know toxic to the others, and the swords on the Starks graves laps are iron swords, but. Steel isn't really effective against the others, nor is iron. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe George kind of slightly changed course very early on, and that's what those early references are for. But yeah. I'm not sure. And that, and, that may, and maybe he intended Needle to, to be more useful. And you can excuse that, too, thankfully, because, like, we don't know. We don't, and neither and, would they. Why and, would yeah, they Why know? would they? Yeah, yeah. so just, that was a myth. Yeah. That's not the just, reality. And that happens a lot. Yeah, with John, there's a lot of things in John's chapter, for example, he thinks about that are, that are incorrect about, you know, like uh, he thinks about how people call him the Kingslayer behind his back and the Lion of Lannister to his face. We see no one call him that. Yeah. <laughs> no one calls him the Lion of Lannister. It's like mentioned like twice the rest of the series entirely. So anyway, yeah. So it's and, and that's not necessarily bad foreshadowing or just bad writing or a mistake. It's just characters being mistaken about the way things are. And that's realistic. That is, it would be wrong if you never had things like that. You don't want too much of it because it becomes confusing, but none of it. And it's not realistic. All right, let's go to our last chapter of the day. At last, a Sansa point of view. The first, last chapter of A Game of Thrones. Or rather, the last first chapter. In other words, of all the people who have a POV, she's the last one to get her first chapter. She used to ride with the queen and Marcella, but instead rides with Joffrey. Everyone talks of how the king has gone hunting again with Ned dragged along, which makes it sound like that's happening quite a lot. Again, Ned getting dragged all over the place by the king. We're reminded of that already. Sansa meets quite a few interesting characters along the way before they all begin spoiling it. <laughs> Sansa's best qualities aren't particularly present yet, but next to Joffrey, she's like the best girl ever. He's bitten by Nymeria. 
And that's that for the Dire Wolves. Run, one is run off. The other is guilty by wolf association. Um, Eddard Stark left before dawn. Septimordain informed Sansa as they broke their fast. That's the first line of the chapter. Septimordain is not a fan of Lady, and I wonder what Alisande's Septas thought of Silverwing back in the day. I doubt she fed Silverwing bacon under the table, but the Septa is an interesting extension of Sansa here. She reinforces a lot of the things that Sansa has to end up growing out of, although she also teaches her several things that Sansa leans on quite a bit, courtesy being her lady's armor and all that. That's really important. And, you know, as much as Septa Mordain is kind of, um, I don't know, annoying. When it comes down to it later, Septa Mordain is brave in the final moments, so you got to give her credit there. And I, I will say, I would imagine plenty of Septas would have had to deal with the Targaryen girl feeding their dragon under the table because think about the scenes with Daenerys feeding her dragons. Like, if they hatch a dragon and have to raise it, like, you think we know plenty of girls who hatched and raised a dragon. They might have, uh, they might have, uh, spoiled them a little bit you're right yeah i didn't think about it that way i only thought about alisand but yeah there were lots of other targaryens you know because obviously with, with, the, with Sansa, the baby but yeah. dragon but yeah like um, some women got just a full-grown dragon from the get-go and that's a different story that makes sense you might have seen things like what happened with rickon when the dragons were chained up rickon went to them or the direwolves. Yeah. Like if the dragons were kept in you know, certain places and they weren't allowed in the dining room which you would expect mm-hmm. <laughs> then they would sneak off to go visit them and that mm-hmm. might be partly because of a little bit of the uh, bond, you know? Mm-hmm. So Sansa, of all the characters, is the one who most loves songs and stories. And she's also the one whose POV, more than any other, teaches us right away, thanks Joffrey, that this is not a typical fantasy story in that sense. It's, but it is a song, a song of ice and fire. It's like one of those songs that you learned as a kid, which, never forget, she is one. But think of all the songs that you heard as a kid, but you never really thought about the lyrics. And then as an adult, you're like, whoa. They were talking about sex. They were talking about pot. They were talking about drunk, drink, dr- drinking and drugs and things like that. They were talking about adult themes, and you just never realized. Like Puff the Magic Dragon. Like remember, um, what is it? Uh, Meet the Parents when when Ben Stiller's character is like telling poor sheltered Robert De Niro who never learned the lyrics to never really learned what Puff the Drag Magic Dragon I don't really think meant. Anyone could call Robert De Niro poor or sheltered in that movie. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> He was mean and scary. Okay, that's all. I just need to say that. <laughs> like, like, uh, like, uh, like a lot of characters in here. They were sheltered, but they were also mean and scary. <laughs> Robert De Niro is Cersei. <laughs> and um, so if you realize, it's like this. It's the kind of, same, kind of same thing here. We look back, we see these clues were always there. Just like those lyrics. Well, those lyrics were always written that way. I just didn't know what they meant. And Sansa's also... My my favorite example of that is Afternoon Delight, by the way. <laughs> I used to love singing that. I mean, Rest Development, obviously, I don't hear a whole reference to it anyways. And and that it, it, it happens a lot now still. Like, people are so oblivious. Like, there's a banking commercial for that uses the Iggy Pop song, Lust for Life. That's a heroin song. I mean, and this was a national campaign. <laughs> it was just like, bank, just like a bank commercial where like people are like, do-do-do, banking happily heroin <laughs> like wow so but sans is also kind of our portal into learning these things she's also sheltered this is huge the fact that she's sheltered and none of the other starks really were rob would be the next closest to being sheltered but he wasn't really sheltered he just was the next closest to it uh, and this is a good another hat tip to another one of our listeners, Stephanie the Peerless, Dwarf of the Lowlands. This is uh, 
a meta clue with that dichotomy of Sansa and Arya, who, as we suspect, and if we're calling talking about the TV show, no, they'll eventually team up. They'll become, you know, the pack stays together. The pack thrives, et cetera. The pack uh, survives. But here we go right away with that dichotomy. Arya's out there learning about the world. As they're traversing south on the King's Road, she's out there getting her knees skinned, getting literally her hands dirty, right? That's that old metaphor for getting in the midst of it, get, actually getting down and becoming a part of things. Arya points out that inside the wheelhouse, you can't see what's going on outside of it. That's a beautiful metaphor for being sheltered. Sansa wants to be in that wheelhouse. And Arya's like, are you kidding me? You don't get to experience anything in there. There's nothing. There's no, you can't even bring your dire wolf. And that's where the metaphor gets really deep because it isn't just about sheltered kids versus kids out, you know, living their lives and playing in the front yard and, and uh, you know, getting mosquito bites and learning, you know, oh, that's why you shouldn't go, you know, go there because you'll get bitten. Uh, you know, rather than learning these things in the books, you learn them from experience. And but the whole business with Arya learning about people and Sansa being sheltered and needing to get out of that to learn the world to be a queen. Hmm? Arya goes off the beaten path, meets all kinds of people. Sansa stays sheltered for now. And in this chapter, though, George already starts to break that trope. He already starts to show us what's happening. Sansa does go off the beaten path. She's supposed to go ride in the wheelhouse. Instead, she goes off with Joffrey, and Joffrey takes her all over the place, interesting places. And she likes it until, you know, it goes bad at the end. Very bad. But it tears the wool off her eyes as a character a bit, and ours as well with regard to these fantasy tropes. She starts thinking about, oh, my handsome prince, and she's the one thinking about these songs. But... This is not that kind of story. You have to learn your people in the realm they live in if you want to be a good queen. And it's the kind of thing we see in Bran's chapters. We think we're, we're, all, we're hot on the trail of Bran being king foreshadowing. And here we are in Sansa's arc. We've got to be on the lookout for her becoming a queen. And this is that. This is her being told indirectly the kind of lesson she's going to need if she wants to be a queen. The same kind of things Bran is learning. So let's have some Valar reintroduce us to some characters that we already know, but Sansa is meeting and they're being reintroduced to us here in the story. Renly. Interestingly enough, she thinks of Renly as handsomer than Jamie. Hmm, handsomest man he's ever she's ever seen. And she's seen Jamie. So hmm. And she's into Joffrey, who's blonde. So Yeah, good point. So, so. blonde. Maybe she actually likes dark haired men, or it's all real. I don't know. Hmm. Dark-haired men, yeah, and John is dark-haired. Hmm, yeah, John is dark-haired, but uh, she doesn't. Yeah. yeah, I wonder. I wonder. The, I mean, hound, gonna, the hound is dark-haired. The hound is dark-haired. Yeah, Loris, I guess, is brown hair. Loris is brown. Yeah. Anyways, so, I don't know. Interesting. And of course, Barristan is there, and she says, "Even in the north, we've heard of the tales of Barristan the Bold, and even in the north, that's uh, you know a little bit of a reference there. He maybe was meant to switch sides to the Starks, and you know, in the original draft, instead of switching to Daenerys, but." Uh, his style of dialogue here. He, he's a good example of, of a character whose characterization is a little off here in the beginning. He's joking. He calls Renly a prancing jackanapes, which he doesn't do any, he doesn't do anything like that. He doesn't joke like at all later. <laughs> so yeah, a good example of, eh, this is not quite the Barristan we know. This is not the time for joking, Aziz. <laughs> he was ejected from the King's Guard and now he's in Essos. <laughs> okay. He never had time for more jokes. <laughs> 
And of course, we get more Sandor who's popping up all over the place here, chapter to chapter, and kind of underlining that he's going to be important later. The fact that he's popping up in Sansa's chapter and in in in, uh, in the other early chapters, Tyrion, and uh, I guess uh, who are those other characters? He's popping up all over, and Ilan Payne comes up and here we get some early sense of cleverness her courtesy being a lady's armor and all that she jumps in when when joffrey says have a care how you address my betrothed and and sansa playing diplomat i can answer sansa said quickly to quell her prince's anger and that's uh when she says cersei says that uh the king's justice needs to strike terror into people. If he doesn't strike terror, then he's not a good King's Justice. And Sansa says, then surely you have chosen the right one, Your Grace. You can see how she's just really good at this, even though she's, there's certain other things she's naive about. She, she seems, this is her at home. This is like, she's a natural at this, at being, at making people feel good about themselves, at identifying uh, good things to make them, you know, praiseworthy things to say. Uh, smoothing things over, kind of running the, noticing the room, the the mood of the room and uh, kind of managing that. Leadership. These are leadership qualities. Um, They're subtle, but they're there. She has, she's observant in the same way as her family is, but about different things. She's observant about these things, these great qualities. She observes what's good about Renly. She notices there's the scene where she's thinking to herself all his different detail and pieces together who he is. She hasn't learned to be observant about the same types of things that John and Arya have learned to be observant about because her upbringing has been different. But we see that she has that skill. It's just applied differently. It's more aimed towards the nobility and the things like that rather than towards commoners and uh, other types of moods that she may be not used to identifying things that John and, and, and Ari are maybe a little more keyed into. But of course, this line from Illen, or about Illen rather, he seemed to feel the weight of her gaze. Slowly he turned his head. Lady growled. A terror as overwhelming as anything Sansa Stark had ever felt filled her suddenly. Surely this terror of Illen is about her father's death, more so than how terrifying he looks, though that does help. So that is major foreshadowing, and it's pretty straightforward when you see it. Also, there's some maybe foreshadowing, but not. Because remember, George's original plan for Sansa was to marry Joffrey and to have that stick of kids and to stay on that side of things. So there's foreshadowing for her losing her starkness here, but that does happen. That still does. She does still lose her starkness. We expect she'll regain it. Or perhaps embrace it in a way that she never has. Because right here, from the beginning, Septim Ordain says, you should wear the gray velvet. You should look your best. Sansa thinks, Sansa already looked her best. (laughs) I love that line. (laughs) But more telling, the gray velvet stark color is not what she chooses. She had already picked out blue silks. Uh Mm. There's also this sort of harmless teenage lie thing that happens. To Arya, she says, I hate writing. But to Joffrey, she says, I love writing. It's harmless now. I mean, if you're judging Sansa too harshly for this, I mean, come on. This is a little white lie. And it's a matter of survival later when she has to lie to Joffrey. Sandor literally tells her, give him what he wants. It'll go easier on you. He's right. It's of same kind of courtesy as a lady's armor. It's that same mindset. He's just reminding her, 
you're not a murderer because that line is comes when Sansa's thinking of jumping off the bridge and taking Joffrey with him or with her. Uh, another line that really jumped out to me when Sansa's feeding the bacon to Lady under the table, the line is, the direwolf took it from her hand, as delicate as a queen. That line sticks out to me. A queen? Well, a, any kind of queen mentioned early in Sansa's arc sets off alarm bells, but that line on its own. When is delicate as a queen? Like, who, that doesn't, where does that come from? Like, I don't think of queens as delicate. You know, I think of them as maybe noble or powerful, maybe graceful, especially not in this story. Queens, delicate? Nah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I don't know about that. And this is also coming full circle. In the Tyrion chapter, she's like, we hear from that Cersei is really not happy about the direwolves, and she does not want them at King's Landing. And here we go. Arya tells that without even knowing. Arya says, Sansa to, says to Sansa, Queen's not going to let you bring the direwolf in the wheelhouse. She's not going to let you bring... And what she's really saying, the subtext, is she's not going to let you bring the direwolf to King's Landing at all. And as we know, because of the result of this chapter, Lady and Nymeria are now gone. Nymeria will hopefully come back. Lady clearly won't. And um, yeah, and it's making, it's all tragic because we see that Sansa and Lady have a really nice relationship. Sansa gets a lick from, uh, from Lady. It makes her smile. Their connections is cute, but tragic. And uh, Arya, of course, there's some reverse foreshadowing here. As I said, all their fighting is just, you know, a, a smokescreen to them eventually becoming uh, tight, presumably. She mentions Rhaegar's rubies. We get more and more pieces of backstory falling in place. Rhaegar is mentioned in, in, all, in, in a lot of the chap, a lot of these early chapters, almost every chapter, not almost every, but like half of them he's mentioned. He comes up a lot. And it's neat because this is the seventh mention in total of him to this point. And Arya is looking for the seventh ruby, which I don't think George did that on purpose. It's probably just a coincidence of the number seven. But hey, maybe it was maybe it was on purpose. Uh, Arya finds purple flowers called poison kisses, which probably isn't a reference to Sansa having purple amethysts in her hair with poison in them later. But it might be. It might be. Horses running from Nymeria is a hint that the direwolves are scary as heck to horses and that that will be a factor in battle. It certainly comes up in the first battle we see with a direwolf in it, which is uh, the Whispering Wood, where Grey Wind howls not only rips up horses and men, but scares the crap out of the, uh, the enemy army and their horses before they even see him. Uh, this chapter is almost as much about Arya as it is about Sansa. I think it's a more telling about Sansa because there's so much uh, introduction stuff here. There's so much foreshadowing about her, but clearly Arya uh, features in it almost as much. Um, and the differences between them, which, as I said, again, will come full circle. It's a strength. Their differences will become strength. You know, they, they complement each other. They have all the bases covered. One's really good at some things. The other's really good at other things. You can see how good it's a, a team they would be if uh, once they learn to get along. Also, a lot about Joffrey in this chapter, of course. It's more about Sansa and Arya, but there's lots of Joffrey. And there's more hinting here that he's just nothing like Robert. His sword is liony. His horse is red. It's just... There's just nothing connecting him to Robert, really. Uh, not much, anyway. Maybe some of the stormy personality, Joffrey has a temper, but 
it's, it's different in tone to Roberts, even in that. One line here that kind of stood out to me is that they tracked a shadow cat to its lair. I'm like, what? Do not do that. <laughs> shadow cats are really dangerous. So I don't know what to make of that. It might just be some early world building gone slightly awry. So Renly tracked a shadow cat? <laughs> and was killed by a shadow. <laughs> uh-huh. There you go. Nice, nice wordplay. So Joffrey is really kind of perfect for winning Sansa over because he's this perfect prince who's not perfect at all. He's the one that it's he's a by perfect, I mean he's the perfect one to show her what a prince really can be. You know, that not all princes are songs and I mean, this kid is awful right away. You see how terrible he is. It's it, You don't see the worst of him yet. It just it builds over time. But it's clear he's terrible. It just isn't clear how terrible he's going to be. And we've already seen Tyrion's chapter and Arya's chapter. And Jon got a bad vibe from Joffrey, too, even though it was just the way he was looking at things and the way he was in the yard. So it's a very classic manipulative abuse tactic. You win them over by being your best being nice, being graceful, being noble, being protective. That's a really big one. And then her prince was there, the line says, when she's afraid and all these people are around her. And Joffrey is like, I'm here for you. And it's just what she expected from the songs. I mean, he just, he appears all gallant right in her moment of need. And then a few minutes later, chapter wise, you know, in, in terms of the book, it's it's hours later. He's he's awful and cowardly and and don't touch me. It's, it goes quick, y'all. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> she is, this is Sansa's first chapter and she, that wool is torn off of her eyes quickly. That reality check isn't several chapters later. It starts now. It, it, it hasn't fully come around for her, but it's starting now. It's like the wool's off her eyes. She hasn't accepted what she's seeing just yet though, but she's starting to. And it's of course, as soon as her next chapter or the next chapter, which is Eddard's chapter uh, involving her is when lady will die. And yeah, then it really goes downhill from there. This chapter sets up the borders between Ned and Sansa too. They're never truly opposed, but again, it's what I was saying earlier. Ned, he's closer to Arya, like lovingly. He understands her more, but still doesn't get either of them. You know, he's not, uh, he's still trying to try just to, force Arya into this lady role yet he doesn't really understand it as it applies to Sansa he just kind of goes along with it it's like another thing that Ned does because it's his duty Ned does all kinds of dutiful things he doesn't understand his kids go along with a lot of these dutiful things and question them they he doesn't do them you know a lot of his kids uh and John don't do the things that duty demands of them they take a step back and say this is wrong this isn't good. A, a classic example, just because it came up on Twitter today. Shout out to uh, Chloe Ketchum, Lies in Arbor Gold slash uh, Girls Gone Cannon podcast. She brought up an image of Ned getting ready to execute a grit. Uh, John, would Ned have done that? Probably. It's a wildling. You got to execute the wildlings. But John couldn't do it, even though he was in danger, even though not doing it was a danger to him. So, this is all very interesting. Sansa is going to have to learn these things a different way. Whereas all the other Stark kids are learning these things out in the world, you know, getting their knees dirty and, and uh, mosquito bites and poison ivy and all that, or whatever it's called, poison kisses. 
is is a different is a road is the road for Arya and John and even Rob and some of these other characters in Daenerys, but it's not Sansa's road. But she's still got a lot of the same things to learn, and she has a lot of the same talents. But her support system and the characters around her are a lot different. And the stories and songs are in this chapter as well. We we get Serwin of the Mirror Shield, a character who's going to pop up several times, a character who seems to be some sort of hero for all ages because he doesn't fit with any of them. <laughs> He's a knight from the Age of Heroes before there were knights. He's fighting against giants and dragons, which doesn't really make sense given the Age of Heroes. And he fights for some girl named Darissa, who has a Targaryen-sounding name that never comes again. And we don't... So who the heck is that? Uh, so it's kind of... But it's it's neat that Sir when the Mirror Shield is this really ancient kind of story, even even though he's been uh, given modern versions or re- modern retellings. Aemon the Dragon Knight comes up as well, and interestingly, this is uh, ties into a lot of the parentage questions, not just John, but also uh, Young Griff slash Fagon. Aemon the Dragon Knight slash Nerys. That's the beginnings of what grew into the Blackfire plot. And of course, that's where Young Griff eventually got tied to. Uh, he's probably a Blackfire. More on that later, of course. But Sansa's here thinking of Aemon the Dragon Knight standing up for her, for Nerys against the slanders of Sir Morgil. The slander of Sir Morgil was that Nerys slept with Aemon. <laughs> so, and that Daron the Second was the result. And Daron the Second is in the appendix of a Game of Thrones, even the original copies, and it says even in the original copies, that it's unsure who his father was, Aemon or Aegon. Oh, I just wanted to mention um, back, because you mentioned the poison, the poison kisses a few times, and you were wondering if it was possible at all to be foreshadowing for Sansa. I was wondering about it being foreshadowing for Arya and poisoning and killing people, because obviously in Mercy we start to see more of a seduction element to things great catch you're probably right poison kisses yeah poison kisses mm, yeah and it, does she uh and, and we see and we do see that on tv not from aria but yeah, we from do Ilaria. see from Ilaria. so maybe yeah so the the, the precedent is somewhat there okay i don't know okay. i just wanted to mention that it could be relevant to aria you're right that's a great one yeah okay let's chalk that let's put that one on the list y'all <laughs> Okay, uh, any Sansa questions? Looks like we got a few Sansa questions. Um, and we'll be talking about what's coming up next as well as we get ready to wrap this up. These early Game of Thrones Valar Reredis episodes are longer than I think some of these other ones are going to be because, like I said, there's just so much foreshadowing packed into these. There's, the, the, the chapters are going to get a little bit more plot-heavy. They'll still have lots of foreshadowing. There'll still be lots to talk about, but there will be less... Uh, set out that seeks to explain their entire arc. You know, that's what George is trying to give full endgame arc, arc t- style descriptions of some of these characters from the very beginning. And as we get deeper into their arcs, there's less of that. So I think these episodes will probably get a little shorter, but I think two and a half hours is okay. I think that's manageable. It's not, it's not too far out of line or normal. But I do, I will say that I want these to be a little closer to two rather than two and a half. And I think Shea agrees. Yeah. So, but anyway... Well, um, uh, let's see here. Uh, we have one more just, little comment. Just one more question. Before we go on to our next time, Christina Minoli points out when we were thinking about the bells, she points out that the bells show up in Daenerys 10, too, in the Dothraki Sea. So oh, we very will get cool. to that eventually. All right, yeah, so more bells being relevant later on. And something to look out for, just, just a reminder, as there's so many things to look out for. 
the bells are a perfect example, something that I missed uh, in this episode. And I feel of all the things I miss, y'all, y'all gave me several. That's the one I feel. Yeah, I, I feel the most obvious. Like I, I, I really feel like that. some of the brand stuff because you've been very keyed into brand stuff. Mm-hmm. I would have thought you might have gotten that. I suppose. Yeah, I, I, I'm trying to be most keyed in on Brand and Danny, but there's just so much stuff. I'm just realizing there's just so much stuff about Brand and Danny and John especially John has brand and Danny stuff in it. <laughs> you know, he's like in the middle of them and Tyrion too. Tyrion has all the stuff. It's really awesome. It's just where I'm having so much fun already. And you know, it's funny because that makes that makes sense. And you think about the show at the very end, it came down to, to those four. Yeah. Yeah, it really did. And in the original outline, Arya would have been, would have been maybe more part of it before, but she just was kind of outside it all. Yeah, that's true. And George said that it was originally his original plan was the the main five characters, the ones that it was mostly about were John, Danny, Arya, uh, Tyrion, and Bran. I guess Bran. Yes. Yeah. And but that's changed. Sansa's become more important. Uh, Jamie and Cersei are obviously way more important. They're not main main characters, but he no longer probably would say there's five main characters. That plan is completely thrown out. It, it's just. There's remnants of that, though, <laughs> here in the uh, early going. So next time, here's a few other things to look out for besides the things we've been saying all along. The brand foreshadowing, the, the king and queen foreshadowing, direwolf foreshadowing, magical foreshadowing, all sorts of stuff. Eddard 3, well, Cersei's promise to keep the direwolves out of King's Landing comes to pass. Damn it. Uh, keep an eye also on where they are during that scene, the castle of Lord Derry, uh, who is very much an opponent of the Starks and Lannisters and a certain conversation that Jamie and, and uh, Tyrion have is referenced much later, but it takes place in this chapter or during this chapter, not in this chapter, during this chapter. Brand three. Well, I hardly need to tell you what to look out for in this one. It's the three eyed crow showing up. You know who that is though and where he is. And well, you have more information than you had last time around. Let's put it that way. So Maybe read that chapter twice. Catelyn 4? Well, here comes Littlefinger and Varys. So here comes major political plotting and looking out for their endgames. John 3, Alistair Thorne, Gren, Donald Noy. Very formative characters. Very much people telling him who he's going to be and how he's going to be. Eddard 4, first day on the job and there's his wife in a brothel. Huh, what's that? What's that all about? <laughs> Tyrion 3, look out for what Maester Aemon and Shay have in common. Mm-hmm. You heard that right. Maester Aemon and Shay. Arya 2, quote, the next day their real work began. Began? Yeah. This is the line from her training with Sirio. Sirio is from Bravos, And of course, Bravos is rather important for Arya's arc and the famous the pack survive speech is coming up in that one. So gotta love that. And because of her identity being tested so much, you know, it's big for her. So thanks everybody. Thanks to everyone who came to the live stream. Thanks to everyone who shared, uh, who shares and or shared the episodes and episodes coming. Thanks to everyone who tells their friends and gets more people involved in Valar Reread Us. Shea is the best. Thanks very much for everything you do over there behind the camera and on the mixing board and all that other stuff. I did a lot in this episode. I even ate. <laughs> That's wearing. See, we said she wears multiple hats, but also eats 
multiple sandwiches. <laughs> Thanks also to Sir Buckley, who helped with the notes for this episode. That's going to be a regular feature of our rereads. Uh, two eyes, two sets of eyes are better than one. And um, y'all are even more sets of eyes. What a thousand <laughs> eyes in one. A thousand eyes in one. Yeah. That's a, that's perfect. <laughs> oh, no, no, we, no we, one. We, we, we want a million eyes in one. <laughs> yeah, just one one. Only only one one-eyed man. I read one. one woman. With, I read with one eye closed. Okay. I read this way. Also, thanks to Michael Klarfeld for our new little video intro thingy and the music that goes with it. He found. He didn't write that music, but he found it for us, and it's good. The music is Jesse Kowal. No, that's the, that is the music. My bad. Yeah. The music, that is our ending music. The music for that is Kevin McLeod. Oh, Kevin McLeod. That's right. Yeah, yeah we said that earlier. Yeah, I forgot I about that. saying it wrong. Kevin McLeod. Thank you for that, Kevin. And of course, also thanks, as Ashea briefly mentioned there, Joey Townsend and Jesse Kowal did our regular intro slash outro music. Thanks to them as well. And again, thanks to all our patrons and Facebook group members, Flick members, and everyone who supports, likes, and spreads the word. Until next time, it should be next Sunday as usual. Eastern Valar. Reread us.